Welcome to the podcast is dedicated to making you a faster cyclist. The ask a cycling coach podcast presented by trainer road and coach Jonathan Lee. We have trainer road in Cannondale's Amber Pierce. Good morning, everyone. Our head coach, Chad Timmerman is back. Hi everyone. <laughs> so, so happy to be it's back. So yeah. <laughs> I know it's been a while. Huh? And of course we also have orange seal and specialize Alex wild. What's up, Alex? Hey y'all. Excited yeah. to have this crew. Have we ever had this? <laughs> this quartet here between the four of us? I'm not sure we have. I think Chad's Maybe trying to avoid me. <laughs> yeah. It's strategically. Yeah. yeah. I don't much care Side for that one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, welcome to the podcast where we answer the questions that you've submitted every week. You can do so at trainerroadcom slash podcast. We received a bunch of them this week. We received a ton. Keep it going. Whatever questions you have, whether they're rapid fire fun questions, whether they're questions about your performance or an upcoming goal, how to train, anything like that, just send them over trainerroadcom slash podcast. And within that as well, I also want to mention a successful athletes podcast. If you've used trainer road in any way to accomplish anything, and this doesn't have to be some big feat, you should go to trainerroadcom slash S A P. And if you go there, you'll be able to submit your story. You'll be able to find out information about the successful athletes podcast, listen to the latest episode and do all that stuff. So please do that. Uh, we need as many applicants as possible all the time for that as I'm scheduling things out months in advance. So please do that and please share your story. I want to hear it. We all want to hear it. Uh, that podcast has been, uh, people are loving it and it's picking up a ton of steam. We had an episode with, uh, Egert Pura from Estonia. He's the Estonian or an Estonian elite national champion an age group national champion for time trials. And he's a triathlete. So he's just flexing on everybody. He probably went for a run right afterward, actually, just to rub it salt in the wounds of all the cyclists. Um, and then on top of that too, um, we also have, uh, seven. So, uh, Octavio, uh, Flores Quintero. He was uh, one of our podcast guests. He did the coolest sounding ride. I think I've ever heard of Chad. It's in not, not far from where you and I actually vacationed at one point in Puerto Vallarta and where we mountain biked, but he actually came down that way and did a multi-day ride fully catered it was amazing. And it sounds like the best ride I've ever heard of. So multi-day ride where it's catered and you have like lush camping in the jungle next to a river and you get to finish it PV on the beach. So it's pretty cool. Talked all about that. Check it out. Successful athletes podcast, find it on whatever podcast app you listen to. And of course you can find it on YouTube too. And at some point, Amber, we need to do the successful athletes podcast episode with you. So that'd be a lot some, of fun. Yeah. We need to make it happen. So, uh, that'll be a blast. And by the way, Amber keeps muting and unmuting because she's got some, <laughs> they're doing construction. They love to do construction on Thursday mornings, of course. Uh, so <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's a little background noise going on over here. We'll try to keep it to a minimum. So apologies in advance if, yeah, it's hopefully it's not too disruptive. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. We'll uh, okay. And then the other thing I want to mention is on Instagram, everyone should follow us on here on Instagram, follow trainer road. We have a ton of stuff that we're always putting out there. Unique content to Instagram that you don't get elsewhere as well. So training insights, uh, we share excerpts from all the different content we put out and you'll probably be surprised when you go into there, you'll see how much stuff we're putting up on our blog, our podcast, our YouTube channels and all that stuff. Follow us on TikTok too. We're there posting race analysis videos and tons of insights. Uh, we've got some uh, race analysis videos lately that have been going viral and it's a ton of fun. So check that out. And then also I, I realized this. So we got Nate to over 10,000 followers. 
and and we all love Nate. Nate's awesome. Uh, however, Alex Wild isn't up to 10,000 followers yet, which means Alex Wild can't share links. And that's crazy <laughs> because Alex Wild is a pro mountain biker who's raced for Team USA and he totally should. So he has, does weekly Q&As on Mondays. And you can answer, ask whatever questions you want. And he answers them thoroughly and in a great manner. He also shares a bunch of insight into his training. So he's not one of those pros. It's just like taking pictures of coffee stops and that's it. Or like, you know, avo toast and saying that's what he eats all the time. He shares everything. Um, and then on top of that, it's really interesting because you just get to see, um, I feel like Alex, you're, you're really transparent with your Instagram too. You share a lot of what you go through. So it makes me feel like, Oh, Hey, like I know at times I tell myself the pros are totally different people, but when I see that Alex is going through, I'm like, he's a normal person just doing extraordinary things. So, uh, so anyways, follow Alex. He's on, he's on Instagram, search Alex wild. You'll find him. And you can also, we'll have a link, we'll have a, his handle down below in all the description for this podcast, uh, whether on Don't YouTube worry, or I, Instagram. I'm just going to, I'm going to change my handle to chop liver. I'll be good. <laughs> oh, shoot. <laughs> Amber's on there too. Amber Malika. And believe it or not, Chad's on there, but Chad only brings, uses it when he jumps in for beers with Chad. So it's, uh, it's rarely, rarely comes off the bench, but you can find Chad. I'm totally teasing too. only cause I'm not at 10 K, but I'm not here for the followers. Don't worry about it. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> just Amber's not to, a 10K. Just had to rip you a little bit, Jonathan. <laughs> All in good fun. <laughs> Uh, I don't know. Nate was just rallying for it, shamelessly rallying for it. So no, he was. Know, he that's fair. There. That's okay. fair. Yep. <laughs> I guess we, I guess we got to be shameless, Amber. This is true. Every and now that Nate's going to be my Insta handle now. <laughs> now that Nate's not here uh, this week, we can rib Nate because last week was rib chat episode. This week it's it can be rib Nate episode. So uh, Nate gave you plenty of jabs yesterday or last week when we talked about New Year's resolutions, what Nate was setting, and then what you had set in the past, everything else. But uh, Chad, in this case. Looking ahead, what are your resolutions, and and even do you want to call them resolutions? Uh, y- yeah, I should probably start with the review of last year's sure. resolutions, right? Because I, <laughs> yeah. I I did actually yeah, yeah. jot them down, which is a huge step forward considering how I usually address New Year's resolutions. And that was one of your resolutions, actually, was to write them down. So <laughs> check right there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So let me make a couple things clear. First off. <laughs> Goals need events. And when those events drop off the calendars, I don't think it can be held against me that I didn't follow Mm. through with with these goals. I mean, I think that pretty much sums up everyone's 2020. Mm. And then secondly, I don't Mm -hmm. don't really think people need New Year's resolutions. I've never really understood them. So it's hard for me to get behind them. I mean, I think if you're going to make a goal, you make a goal. You don't need January 1st to tell you to do so. And I think people who postpone their goals until January 1st are pretty unlikely to achieve those goals, but, mm. but never mind all that. Let's, let's talk about what I didn't do <laughs> last year. Ignore logic, Chad, <laughs> embrace banter, ignore logic. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> distract, distract. Okay. So yes, sub 50 goal or sub 50 TT is still a goal, but last year, as soon as master's TT got pulled off the calendar, it, there went my motivation. I know it's yeah. an excuse, but that's, that's, that's my excuse and I'm sticking to it. Uh, the seven minute mile pace thing, it's still a goal, but it's all relative to the triathlon challenge, which also got pushed back. So mm. why drum up that sort of running speed at the expense of all the other fun things I want to do when I don't really have a goal to put behind it? Yeah, and to be fair with that one too, Chad, if you don't mind, like if you had really pushed yourself to the point of being a seven minute mile at marathon distance, then if, if you had done that, I guarantee that you would have had 
some injuries that you would have fought through or still be fighting through something like that. And it would have comp to your point, it would have compromised a whole lot of other things. That's the sort yeah. of thing where you don't really push to that level unless you have an event requiring you to do it. Right. Sure. And, and realistically, I was only shooting for 10 K at seven minute pace because I've done 10 mm -hmm. K at six minute pace before actually slightly under brag, but I, I, I knew it was going to take a good long while to advance that to the half marathon distance and then to triathlon. So it's a lofty goal. I don't fully expect mm -hmm. to achieve it, but I like it as a carrot. Mm -hmm. Um, as far as the training center went, I mean, we're moving, that, that's it. And we were fully on track to build the training center. The endless pool had a deposit on it. I mean, we were fully in motion and then we just, we found out we were going to have to move, which by the way is motivated by a residency that my fiance got in uh, Washington. So we're yeah. relocating because of that. <laughs> But some people were speculating on the forum. They're like, why is Chad moving? As if there was some like up. greater mystery. So I figured I would address it. Yeah, it's not a big deal. Um, and to, to be clear, that was not a cheap endeavor. So it wasn't something you build and just hope that you'll recoup that cost when you sell your house. It was not going to be inexpensive. And then uh, pick a focus. And this is one I think I did achieve because when we said Cape Epic was the event, I started focusing on mountain biking. I was riding with Pete on a pretty weekly basis. I did a three-week block of Sweet Spot. I don't ever think I've done a three-day block of Sweet Spot before. <laughs> so my motivation was high. I did some rides. I mean, I rode with Nate on a long gravel ride, and I think I held my own just fine. So my trajectory was good, and my focus was good. If mountain biking was the goal, and I was moving toward it. Now that's gotten pushed back, what? Uh, seven, eight, nine months, mm -hmm. substantially. So seven months. So I got a little time to reprioritize. And and I know from experience that I can't stay super on track for more than <laughs> three, four, maybe five months at a time. So I need to target my time strategically. Mm. Which brings have me to my time. 2021 resolutions. And I omitted the S because I only have one and it's a bit of a brain buster. <laughs> so bear with me. Uh, it's to never make a new year's resolution again, because I, I just don't, <laughs> I don't follow through with them. So my resolution is to never again resolve to do anything. <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time, that's not fully accurate because you're the sort of person that, that constantly is like setting goals and knocking them down. You know what I mean? So I, I'd so like yeah, to think so. Just, yeah. <laughs> Nate, on the other hand, calls it into question. Right. So, Yeah. Um, well, think, just this, go ahead, Amber. I was just going to say, I think one of the, the first point Chad made, I just want to circle back to that real quick. Cause it's really important. It's important to be flexible with goals because sometimes things happen that are out of your control. Like, Oh, I don't know, a global pandemic. And mm -hmm. it's important to be able to say, okay, I'm going to roll with the punches and I'm going to set some new and different goals because all my events got canceled, for example. And, mm -hmm. and that's okay. And there's a lot of different reasons that you might need to readjust a goal that you set for yourself. And doing so doesn't necessarily mean that you're some kind of a failure or a quitter. We all need to, we all need to make those adjustments. You know, a goal is something that you set for yourself with the information you have at the time <laughs> and that Certainly. can evolve and it's okay for your, go your goals to evolve as well. Yeah. You've done that yourself, right, Alex, in the sense that like you now, um, you have like kind of like a clear path forward on what would be needed to qualify for Tokyo. So you're going to go for that. So like new information as a result. Now you have a plan, right? Absolutely. But I, I hear Chad and, and the fact that some of some goals need the event, right? Like there's still the fact that the Olympics could get canceled. So I, I show up ready to go and then it's, it's not there anymore. So there's, there's that piece of uncertainty. That's never fun, but like we were talking about with Pete, I like having the, like the big North star, right? 
like I was chatting with Jonathan the other day. I actually ordered a Olympic flag for the gym because I really liked his idea of uh, he had all his medals up in front of him. And it's like, I like the idea that when I'm in there, it's like sole focus, right? Like this is, this is what it's all for kind of thing. So I think having those goals is really good. And, and the events definitely helped me as well. Yeah. It like, forgive me, goodness gracious. Uh, I have like, I, I find that I'm really adhered to process and I can enjoy the training process without an event and everything else. However, that does not mean that that is like my, that I don't gain additional motivation or direction from an event. And that's something that I think is, uh, I probably haven't nail or, uh, mentioned clear, clearly enough over the past year. Yes. I've discovered that I'm very process oriented. I can lock into that. However, an event still, man, it helps so much. It's on those days when you end up, you know, falling short of what you need to do. It's the thing that keeps you sticking to it and adhering. you know, kind of sticking through the hard things. So, so yeah, awesome stuff. Chad, well, I'm, I'm excited about it. I'm sad because you likely won't be here locally, uh, by the time this year closes out. Uh, but at the same time, yeah. it's just an excuse for me to head up to, uh, wherever you're moving, which we'll just, you know, leave it to there, but, uh, and spend some time up there. So it'll be a good place. Okay. Um, Carrie's question. Let's get straight into it. it says, Hey, trainer road is always five out of five stars on the podcast. It just keeps getting better. Good to hear Carrie. That's the goal. And you can leave those reviews on any podcast app you're listening on. Please do so. Uh, let us know, uh, first of all, give us five stars unless you don't think we deserve five stars. And in that case, send us an email. You can do so at trainerroadcom slash podcast and let us know what we need to do to improve. And then we'll consider that and we'll try to apply all of that and get better. It's the goal. So uh, Carrie says, first, I want to commend you on episode 289, where you discussed inflammation and oxidative stress and finishing up my PhD in exercise induced oxidative stress. And I think you did a good job summarizing the research and there's little, if anything that I would correct. One thing I'd add in this area, which is somewhat speculative, but also on my agenda of research to accomplish after my PhD. And this is not a question, but just insight from a very, uh, from a person and very much entrenched into this field. Uh, so, uh, Carrie says essentially oxidative stress and inflammation are stresses as such a bit is good. A lot is bad. While the minimum effective dose is one way to discuss it. The emphasis is on that past a certain point, it can become detrimental to cells. And I think you alluded to this a bit, but didn't clarify. This is in my view, more important, or he says important because during low stresses, supplemental antioxidants, stuff that we would take in, in addition to, to what we, um, naturally are taking in, right. says supplemental antioxidants may attenuate the positive effect, not certain, but theoretical. However, when oxidative stress is higher than the minimum, minimal effective dose, supplemental antioxidants may bring down the stress from detrimental into the manageable region. This is the area I want to continue my studies as it may provide insight as to when antioxidants are beneficial and when they may not be just my two cents. Thanks for listening and keep up the great work. And I love that you are so interested in communicating science best from Carrie. It's pretty cool. That's awesome. That's such a greatly appreciated compliment too. Cause I, when I formulate those deep dives, the idea that an expert is listening is probably why I try as hard as I do. <clears throat> I mean, I want to share information with people, but the idea that someone like Carrie is listening makes me really want to try. Sure. Uh, that's awesome. And, and, uh, Carrie, as you progress through your studies and everything else, if, if you're, if you are able, we would love for you to share anything that you learned with us. That would be great. And then hopefully we can share it on the podcast and, and help inform people here too. So this is super uh, interesting. 
Like is this it, is it, like it, like a holistic idea of right. Like if you come back from training, imagine there was some way to be like you're above the range of like this being good for you. Like you can do this to kind of bring the inflammation down to where adaptation is maximized, or you could like measure it and be like, oh, you're not quite in the range of where we were trying to get you in terms of inflammation and adaptation. So maybe okay, we can like test that and like add in one more interval to get you to the point where we need you to be like that, Mm -hmm. that would be nuts. Wouldn't that be cool? I feel like part of this too. So in Carrie, maybe you can share information with us on this one in a follow-up email, but I feel like there's also an assumption many times the context for this conversation isn't realistic in the sense that a lot of people are assuming that people that are like a zero state of inflammation and then exercises introduces inflammation to the person. And then you can do any number of different things uh, to try to bring it back down to like a zero point. But I'm not sure how many people truly deal like dwell at a zero point, right? Like, hmm. and, and if that zero point is actually a constantly inflamed state, Cause you know, you see like people that are talking about like juice cleanses and all this stuff say like, you're not like you, you're inflamed, you're, you're chronically inflamed and there's chronic inflammation, but then there's also, I'm not sure there really is a thing where you just have zero inflammation at all times. Right. And so that's, that'd be a really interesting thing. I don't know if Carrie has any insight into that, but at what level is the average person? And I'm sure it depends, but at what level the average person is inflamed because I'm sure we're not just zero perfect resting baseline. So Um, be super interesting. Okay. Bill says I'm 62 years old and I understand that recovery time increases as I get older, but my question is, is recovery trainable? Meaning as my body does more structured training, does it get better at recovering from training stress? Is it so to phrase it another way, if you're one year into cycling, are you better or are you not as good as at recovering as you would be when you are 20 years into cycling? Super interesting question. Um, it's it's a great question. So Bill, let me give you the short answer, which is basically yes, because the rate of recovery is just another area of physiologic adaptation that adapts. I mean, it's just like anything else. It's trainable. Basically, you're increasing your stress tolerance, right? And, and, And how quickly or how well you can rebound from stress. And just to put a simple example on it, just imagine when for training road subscribers, you start sweet spot base one and you have a four by eight sweet spot workout to do and you're off the couch, you know, you're pretty deconditioned and and you have to do that workout. That same workout 10 weeks later, when you're well into that sweet spot phase and you do that same four by eight, but now you have an elevated FTP, even with that elevated FTP, you're going to bounce back faster because your body has increased its tolerance for stress. You've gotten better at it. So the same dose of stress that probably hampered you for a couple of days, a couple of days is probably the dose of stress you need on a daily basis just to stay where you are or could, could tolerate on a daily basis and not slip. Point being, you do actually adapt and there's even a term for it. It's called the repeated bout effect. So if you've uh, read any scientific papers or just seen that term about, the idea is a workout puts you in a particular state of, uh, distress, you know, maybe muscle damage. The next time you do that workout, even if it's only a few days later, your body doesn't experience that same level of stress. That repeated bout is now accommodated better because your body has made some adjustments. Hmm. It's a super interesting, that's like one of the, I guess one of the other motivations that we can have to be consistent with training. Like that, that's because that's one of the things that we talk about all the time. The fastest people are the people that perform the best, see the most improvements. They're consistent. 
And I'm sure all of us listening to this can reflect back to the times when we're most consistent. Amber had a professional career, lots of consistency within that. It, <laughs> that's the sort of thing. There are plenty of things that improve and it's cool to know that this is one of them, you know, that comes with that. Yeah, honestly, that that might be the theme for today. I mean, there are a couple things that are going to overlap between questions, but consistency—it's uh, not a—it's not a hard get. I mean, we, we talk about it a lot because it is absolutely vital. But that might be our kind of overarching theme. No. Okay, so that's the short answer, Bill. Now I'm going to give you the long answer because I find this a, a really good opportunity to talk about masters athletes and and more generally aging and. Mm-hmm. And, you know, having defended myself in terms of my New Year's resolutions, now I am in the style of, or uh, as a compliment to our judiciary system, I'm going to approach this in much the same way. I'm going to argue for not really in support or, uh, I don't know, I feel like aging has been prosecuted and, and persecuted. And I'm not exactly going to argue in favor of aging and say that it's not guilty of some of the things for which it's been accused, but I am going to say there are other <laughs> things to consider. So maybe I'm trying to establish a reasonable doubt. So simply, <laughs> I don't want to pin it all on aging. I don't want to reduce it to you get older and you're going to get slower and you're going to take longer to recover. A lot of that may be true, but I don't want us to just pin it on aging. There are other factors at play here. So what we know, and I use that in inverted quotations because there's only a reasonable consensus, we don't really ever know anything, is that performance declines actually become evident at about 50 years of age. This is pretty easy to back up because we have many, many results, high-level athletes, low-level level athletes that we can look at and say there is a tipping point. There is a very visible tipping point. Um, and, then, and that's for now. That tipping point may shift up a handful of years over, over time. We'll see. Recovery appears to take longer in athletes beyond the age of about 35, 40 years of age. <clears throat> Excuse me. So this, this again, is observable. We can at least see it happening. And then finally, recovery is multifactorial. And yes, age is a factor. And in no way am I refuting or challenging this possibility. Okay. Rather, I'm, I'm arguing for the defense here. I'm just trying to say aging isn't the only culprit. Okay, so in line with that that goal, here's here's what else I, I think we need to at least consider. So a number of studies here, first of which uh, James fell back in 2008. As usual, all studies are linked if you want to dig deeper. The perception, the, James and colleagues looked at the perception of fatigue and they compared young athletes, which were right around 24 years of age, to veteran athletes, which were right around 35 years of age. These were termed well-trained cyclists in that they rode 200 kilometers uh, yeah, per week for a minimum of six months. And <clears throat> they were exposed to three 30-minute time trials over the course of three days. So TT on each day, uh, all-out efforts from what I gather. And so both groups showed similar physiological responses. There was no decrease in performance, no, defre- no decrease in the physical fatigue or recovery measures, no decrease in these markers, etc. The only difference was the perception. So perception in the brain of muscle soreness. The veteran athletes reported more soreness, greater fatigue, lower quality of recovery, but their performance didn't reflect this. Their performance Hmm. didn't decline. So my takeaway on this one is that there, there was no physiological or functional fatigue. Fatigue was only evident subjectively, right? It, It varied either way. It was, it was specific to the athlete. And I think that this suggests well, actually, the, the, the scientists think that this suggests that neural fatigue and recovery from that neural fatigue may at times be the true culprit. So we're not talking mm-hmm. about 
bodily fatigue, actual muscular fatigue rather. This is in the brain, which doesn't just mean you can think your way past it. That's not at all the implication here. Um, this also mm. suggests that muscle damage and the rate of recovery from it may not be the only culprit. That's so, so cool. Uh, I was just going to say, I mean, so on the one hand, you can think of it like, I mean, it's not just in your head because central nervous system fatigue yes. and neural fatigue is very real. So this isn't like, this isn't just saying like, oh, you're making it up and it's not real. It is real. That fatigue is real. But what's kind of comforting about that is to know that it's not necessarily actually affecting your performance in terms of say power output. So that's mm -hmm. kind of cool. Like you, you might feel like you're not as on your game as you used to be, sure. but you might actually be. Yeah. And what might that <laughs> knowledge cool. do for this central restriction? I mean, just yeah. knowing that it is quote unquote in my head, but I've mm -hmm. seen that my body can do it. Does that kind of pay itself back to that? I mean, does it let you off the leash a little bit mentally? I don't know. Yeah. Those are super, super yeah. interesting points, right? Because Amber, uh, I bet that, so I know that we're taking this away from aging a little bit in this example. So forgive me, Chad, but uh, I'll try to steer it back to it. But okay. I'm thinking of like whether it was a triple T or a key day where like you really had to perform, whether that was for a rider or something else, Amber, when you were in like, you know, grand tours and long races, you probably that sort of fatigue was huge, especially when you're talking mm -hmm. like central nervous system fatigue, when you're a domestique okay. having to like mm. watch out for a team and accomplish a goal like yeah. That's just got it. You like, you have to be truly fried at that point. Like at the end of that race, it's gotta be so rough. And, but you still manage to perform because that's the job that needs to get done. Like, right. So that, that, that does bring up like kind of like the coping mechanisms or how we get through because the, all of us have days like Thursdays for me. I don't know if it's the, this way for everybody else, but my workout quality suffers substantially on Thursdays. And I think it's because of, you know, neural fatigue, like it's mm -hmm. the podcast and comprehending what Chad is thinking, what Alex is thinking, what Amber's thinking, where we need to push the conversation, what Chad has next on his notes, then all the different perspectives of that are listening to the podcast at the same time. Like my little dual core CPU up here is frying, like, you know, <laughs> so like, and then that makes workouts really hard. So yeah. th like this isn't, this is really interesting. And this has broad application to everybody, not only because all of us, yes, are aging, but all of us experience this sort of like neural fatigue and that does affect our performance. We shouldn't tell ourselves, well, you should just think through it because it's in your head, but it, we can remind ourselves that our body actually still can be capable of doing these things as if we can somehow align the body and mind to that same purpose and make things happen. Um, it's, it's yeah. super fascinating. Exactly. And I think this, sorry, Chad, we'll steer, we'll steer back to your track in just a sec. I just want to, I got nothing but time. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's worrying now. They're like, Oh no, is this going to be a two and a half hour podcast? No, yeah. <laughs> just kidding. Um, this is a super interesting point, which is RPE does not equal performance, right? We, we tend to think that if something elicits a higher RPE, it's going to diminish our performance, but that's not necessarily true. And that's important to keep in mind. Like you were saying, you know, in the stage races, in those later stages, the accumulation of both the cognitive load, the emotional load, the physical load, it starts to take a toll. So the RPE goes up through the week. It doesn't mean that I'm any less physically capable of doing my job or putting out enough power to execute race strategy, whatever it might be. But it might feel different, but that doesn't necessarily mean a detrimental performance 
outcome, which is, Mm -hmm. which are two different things. And the other analogy I'll bring into this too is, um, on my, you know, with menstrual cycle changes. So the week before, for a lot of women, the week before their period, for me, it was just the the couple days right before my period, I would have just RPE through the roof, but it didn't mean that I wasn't capable of doing the workout and I wasn't capable of executing in a race. So it wasn't something that affected the performance outcome, but it really affected how I felt in the moment in the RPE. So I think it's really important to remember that those two things aren't the same thing. And if you get into a workout or you get into a race on a day and you feel horrible, it doesn't mean it's not a sentence to a poor performance, right? Mm -hmm. You still might be able to pull out an amazing performance, even if you don't feel good. Mm -hmm. I'm a Labrador and you just threw a tennis ball. I can't help it. Um, (laughs) (laughs) With this, Chad, this brings up a good point. And I want to kind of uh, run this. So we get this question a lot by people. And, and, and to be clear, it's always better. I think if your RPE is lower at a given power, right? I think we all can agree on that. It's always better to have a lower RPE at a given power. That's the dream, like to have low RPE and just be sailing through. Those are those chainless days that we talk about when you just feel like you can do, you know, you're on top of the world, but, but with that and considering the fact that the context of a race usually brings with it higher RPE in many cases, uh, or, or, kind of these like high stress race environments will, will bring on higher RPE. Um, a lot of people have asked the question and I think, and we have answered it before, but should I intentionally try to raise my RPE, like increase cognitive load during workouts, that sort of a thing so that I'm used to it. And I personally haven't found that that's beneficial at all for me. Like it doesn't make it so that then my RPE outside of those sessions is lower. Um, but maybe it has had some sort of contributing effect to making me feel like I'm used to it. Is that any of the motive Chad behind what you do when you are reading studies, when you're training, doing all that stuff, or you're just trying to get those things done because you want to get them done? Yeah. That's just a pleasant side effect of what I'm already doing. So, and I find that it, I I won't put it in terms of RPE because it doesn't change my RPE. The workout still hurts. Like it's going to hurt. I just find I get through the intervals a little faster because I'm distracted and it does, yes, increase my cognitive load. So maybe that carries to when I'm out on the race, out in a race, in circumstances where information is flying at me from all directions and I'm better at compartmentalizing those things that don't matter and focusing on the things that do. I won't ignore that that is a strong possibility that is, again, a pleasant side effect of what I'm doing. But my intention is really just to distract myself from from discomfort or pass the time when the rides are boringly easy. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It makes sense. And there's, and there's also like, I've thought about this with the rollers cause the rollers are definitely increased cognitive load and I do all my rollers or all my training rides on them, but I, I haven't felt like now I get outside and it's just like carefree. Like I don't have any stress. <laughs> like I don't feel that at all, you know, Gravity so still applies. Yeah, <laughs> indeed it does. So, so yeah, maybe there's, uh, maybe there's something to that. And I don't know, uh, maybe like a rider, like Alex with that's used to riding uh, mountain bikes and everything else would get into a road environment and feel less stressed than another person. But number one, it's really hard to measure that. And then number two, yeah, Alex is shaking his head. It's like, no, road race would be scary. <laughs> I just watch out for flying bottles. Yeah, exactly. But I, I just, um, I I'm sure that that question will come up. A person will be asking, Oh, okay. So should I intentionally try to stress the mind, so to speak, so then I can get used to this. And I'm not in, it would be really tough to measure any sort of outcome and performance improvement as a result of doing that in that regard. But, um, just the same super interesting concept there and really interesting study from James fell of, of showing the fact that even though they were mentally tired, they could still physically do it. 
So, mm-hmm. um, super interesting. Uh, Chad, Even there are other studies like you have. Yeah, I do. Yeah. I do. So, so back on track with, you know, we're, we're still talking about aging here and really the comparison between young and older athletes or masters athletes, uh, a 2015 by during used, they compared young and masters triathletes. And this one was especially interesting because they looked at nutrition practice. So the young athletes were defined as athletes being under or, or at 30 years of age, masters athletes were 50 or older. These athletes in particular rode for roughly 16 hours per week and, or didn't ride trained. So in in all three disciplines, their time amounted to about 16 hours, thereabouts. 182 of these athletes were surveyed or completed the survey that was provided by triathlon Australia. And the intent of that survey was to determine their knowledge of post-exercise nutrition and specifically the recommendations. I'm not sure what uh, Australia's governing body is, but it would be the equivalent to the FDA's recommendations here in the States. What they found was that most of them lack a good understanding of post-workout nutrition when it comes to carbohydrate and protein. Those are the two macros that they looked at. And they, and specifically those guidelines, you know, what are the guidelines? Not too many people answered correctly or answered at all, really. I'll get to that. They did provide them with little drop-down menus. So it wasn't just like they posed that question and hoped for the best. They gave them little Mm drop-downs where they could tick up the carbohydrate intake by 0.1 and tick the protein by five grams. And what they, the the replies were basically 25% were correct. Roughly 25% were correct on the carbohydrate recommendations. 20% were correct on the protein recommendations and 40, a little over 40%. It was like 42 and 43 carbohydrate protein respectively. Simply answered, don't know. Didn't even want to, didn't even want to take a stab. They recognized the pointlessness of that. Just admitted they didn't know. And that's in and of itself is interesting But what's especially interesting and relevant to the conversation here regarding master's athletes and aging is that the master's athletes fell well short of the recommended protein recommendations and short of the carbohydrate recommendations. And for what it's worth, the protein recommendations are 20 grams. The carbohydrate is 1 to 1.2 grams per kilogram. What's more is relative to their body mass, the master's athletes actually ate less protein and carbohydrate than the younger athletes. So the athletes who arguably need it more we're consuming less. And what does this mean? But they consumed significantly less energy post-exercise. So they were, they were blowing their, their workout recovery, at least as far as nutrition goes. So my takeaway is that if nutrition is insufficient, we can't tidally pin all of this on age. Yeah. This, you know, I'm interested in this because I'm always <laughs> talking about nutrition here. And we recently did a deep dive on this. And I think this is super interesting because, uh, one of the things that we talked about is how carbohydrate intake can preserve lean mass. So a lot of the research suggests that taking in carbohydrate, especially post-exercise, can reduce muscle protein breakdown, which is we're just preserving the mass that's there. But carbohydrate cannot trigger, or research suggests it can't trigger muscle protein synthesis. And you have to take in protein to trigger that muscle protein synthesis, which is building the lean mass. And I, you know, I haven't read any studies on this specifically, but it makes me want to pose that question. Mm. I think that would be a really interesting thing to investigate is whether this might be more important with age, where there is also evidence that suggests that building and maintaining lean mass as we age gets gets increasingly difficult with age. So this mm. might be a really, really important factor where, I mean, I, who knew nutrition would have such a big impact <laughs> Yeah, who There's, knew? And you're actually setting me up super well for the <clears throat> for a follow up study by During and colleagues uh, just the very next year, 
where they looked at higher than recommended post-exercise protein feedings. And, and in, in particular, they looked at exercise-induced muscle and damage after downhill runs. So they would actually subject athletes to something that would damage the muscle and then, and then kind of observe the recovery process. <clears throat> Excuse me. And, the, and they divided their, their uh, subjects into a high and a medium protein group. The high group would get, uh, or actually let's start with the, the mid group, that they would get pretty much standard 0.3 grams per kilogram of body weight, whereas the high group would get 0.6. And for context, me as a roughly 85-pound athlete, that would be about 25 grams per serving. 85 kilo athlete? Yeah. That's, that's yeah. a pound. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, Chad's been climbing. He's <laughs> yeah. My threshold might actually mean something these days if, if I weigh that much. Um, so 85 kilogram athlete, me, that's about 25 grams per serving. But in the high group, that would be 50 grams because they doubled it. And they did this three times separated by two hours. So it's three different protein boluses over the course of these, uh, I guess, four hours. Six, yeah, four hours totaling, you know, double the protein. And then they, what they noticed was that, that the high group reduced their perceived fatigue over that eight hour recovery. So now we're back to perception again. Right. And I don't doubt Mm -hmm. that there's something going on behind the scenes, something physiologically also, but their perception changed, which is especially interesting. So my takeaway for this one really is just that again, why not correct something that's easily controllable first, rather than pin it on Mm -hmm. aging, something that we can't really do anything about. We can't do anything about it. Why not say, Maybe it's nutritional because I can fix that or I can at least work toward improving it and see if it has an impact. Uh, Alex, you, you had something that you I think you wanted to say a little bit earlier. Uh, d- is it still applicable? I just wanted to see if maybe clarifying this helps other people. This is the first time I've seen the carbohydrate recommendation post-exercise in terms of body weight. I feel like we always talk about ratios. So it was interesting that the study before was showing the carbohydrate in 1 to 1.2 per kilogram because theoretically right if you if the 20 grams of protein stays the same the ratio would fluctuate based on Mm -hmm. your weight Mm -hmm. so i was curious to see it in in that form yeah something else that comes to mind with this too is um a lot of the athletes i know and and i'm i'm 33 years old so um uh, not a master's athlete yet uh the, the athletes that i race with and that i know that are master's athletes and I'm sure a lot of us can uh, recognize this. A common thing you hear is, yeah, my metabolism's slowing down as I get older. And I see, and whether or not that's true or not, and it's individually variable, but the one thing that is interesting with this is that I see, habitually speaking, in an, on a generalized scale, older athletes eating less than younger athletes. And I can't help but think that this is probably contributing to a lot of the facts that you're talking about is just whether the social pressure or the dogma that exists that we all seem to buy into that I just need to eat less because I'm getting older. And and that's not that if anything, like you said, Amber, we should probably be doubling down on quality and focusing on that as we get older mm-hmm. because of the importance, you know, that that becomes ever more important for us. So I wonder how much that has to play into this, you know, where that's just guiding people's decisions, making decision-making almost subconsciously. And as a result, they're not fueling themselves. Yeah. And just consider that takes place over years of habituation because we always walk that really difficult balance between being as light as we can be and as powerful as we can be. And nourishment is is such a governing force in that, in that, that balancing act. So, Mm -hmm. you know, feed yourself 
enough that you can do everything and recover from everything, but don't feed yourself so much that you actually add weight. And in a lot of cases, feed yourself just a little under that amount so that you can lose a little bit of that excess weight that you don't want. It's Mm. such a struggle. It's hard. Right. Yeah. And on the other hand, there's stories like we had an an episode um, with Ben Jock Main, who was talking about actually being several pounds heavier. He ended up, his power output went up too, to the point where he was able to climb as effectively as he had been climbing Mm -hmm. even a lighter weight. But he found that his, you guessed it, ability to recover after Mm -hmm. a climb and repeat within a single race or workout improved significantly, which, you know, I think that... um, so, so in some cases, it might not be the, you know, it, it really depends on the individual, of course, because for some people, they're going to benefit from some weight loss if there is excess. And then for some people, it might be the opposite. You actually benefit from racing and, and performing at a higher weight than you thought might be your ideal weight. Uh, and it takes some experimentation with that. But yeah, I mean, it's definitely possible in both directions. Where this all starts to break for athletes, and I think that we all have to watch out for this, is when you don't have a consistent input in terms of training, then having a consistent input in terms of like a high volume of food to be able to fuel consistent training. If your training isn't consistent, then you will see excessive weight gain. You won't see the increase in performance because your training isn't there. And that's something that you really have to watch for. Like are Mm -hmm. the conclusions that you're pulling truly coming from a well-balanced equation of consistent training input consistent nutritional input, or is one of those faltering? Are you not hitting mm-hmm. all of your workouts like you should? Are you not doing them consistently? Cause I know for me, if, if my training isn't consistent, then I, it's hard for me to actually pull out anything with certainty in terms of takeaways of what's happening to my body. Uh, that's one of the great things. And one of the reasons why we always suggest that people follow something that gives them a little bit of wiggle room, like a low volume plan or a mid volume plan. If you'd rather do a higher one, because Life can throw you in different directions, but you still have some wiggle room to be able to hit your marks with consistency. There's just a lot of value in that. So if you're an aging athlete that's listening to this and thinking, yeah, okay, I tried feeding before, like, you know, fueling my workouts and doing everything like I should, and I just gained weight. Well, think critically about the training that you were actually doing at that time. Was it truly consistent? Were you missing that? That really is a key part to this before you make any takeaways, Amber. Um, so my husband is in academia and he just sent me a really, really interesting article. Uh, it's an older, older study, but the title of it is the mundanity, the, the mun, mundanity or mundaneness. I can't remember the word <laughs> yeah. of excellence. And the point of the article and the conclusion of it <clears throat> is that the highest performers that we kind of put on this pedestal as being world-class and head and shoulders above the rest, what sets them apart is not necessarily talent or genetics. It's their ability to do the really boring, mundane, unsexy things with incredible consistency. Mm-hmm. That's it. Like, Alex. It's not glamorous. <laughs> it, don't don't take this wrong, Alex, but that's you in my mind right there. Like, like your life is measuring <laughs> yeah. food you just called and doing your sexy. workouts. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Very boring. No. <laughs> but no. you have you have your you weigh your food, you do your workouts, you recover, and you work. And it's that and it's repeated. And and like so I mean, you're an example of that to me. I don't know. So yeah. thank you uh, for sharing your example. Yeah. I think it's just doing the little things right. It's probably my, my favorite quote for that. It's like, I think there's like the, the sexy things, right. You know, like 
being able to hit that interval workout, but it's like, it's also going out on that recovery day and knowing like the focus of today is just a nice, easy one hour spin and doing those things right as well. Make it so you can do those interval days and, and going back to the metabolism thing, like efficiency is in such a tight range from human to human that doing a workout at 25 versus 55, if it's the same power, you're going to burn the same amount of KJ. So I struggle with that metabolism drop off if you still have that training stimulus in your life, because it's probably such a small difference that you should really be focusing on the work portion of it, which is the same regardless of your age. If the power output's the same, you're still burning the same amount of fuel. So you still need to fuel with the same amount of fuel. Awesome insight. Yeah, absolutely. Um, great point, Chad. There are also some, some more, um, observations that you have from some of the studies. <clears throat> yeah. So let's touch back, uh, or check back with James fell again, because in 2008 he did a review. Uh, it wasn't, uh, I, don't, I don't think it was a systematic review. I don't know. There was enough, uh, re- studies for, for it to necessitate that. But anyway, this study in particular, again, it's linked. This is one for anyone who's interested in this topic read this one because there are so many interesting findings and I only pulled out a couple that I found, you know, relevant to this conversation, but also just plain interesting. So amongst, excuse me, the many observations that he makes is one is that within studies, physical activity level of the study participants is rarely considered. And again, this is 2008. So a lot of this has probably improved, but I don't think it's changed uh, completely. There's, There's just no way. So Studies often use what what's termed as sedentary or recreationally active subjects. So never mind training status because we're not even talking about athletes at this point. So when we draw inferences from findings with sedentary or recreationally active people, that doesn't necessarily translate to active, more active people or athletic people. With that said, there are studies that include very active subjects. That's a common term. Um, the terminology dances all over the place, but they'll also provide statistics, which will help you figure out just where those people lie on the spectrum. But they, they found that with very active subjects, they find similar levels of muscle damage and similar rates of recovery. And what's so interesting about this is we're not talking about the comparison between 20 and 30 year olds or 30 and 40 year olds. We're looking at the differences between 20 year olds and 60 year olds. They're usually big gaps I saw one study where it talked about women training in their 60s to late 60s, so push in 70, where they would have similar recovery patterns after resistance training as 20-year-olds because they came into the study very active. So, you know, they didn't pull these people off the couch or uh, I don't know how they go about recruiting them typically, but... (laughs) They, you they brought on the couch. Him. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> You're going to love this. <laughs> yeah. So the, the, a couple takeaways here. One is that studies need to use relevant subjects and cohorts. And again, I, 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 am, I fully believe this is improved. I just don't think it's across the board and it needs to be. The, the, the findings aren't as relevant otherwise. And another takeaway is that this makes it, again, hard to blame age alone. The, the studies aren't perfect. Mm-hmm. So again, the learnings we, we try to take from them well, got to consider all the, all the factors. Hmm. This is a super insightful, hopefully for everybody listening to this, regardless of age, um, on all the stuff that you've brought up. Um, Chad, are there, so yeah, you have even more stuff. Um, yeah. So please so go ahead with this same review by, by James Fell and, and colleagues, 
He also points out that the literature, and we've kind of touched on this already, is rife with inconsistent findings. So they'll have different training levels, different severity of damage from the experimental exercise bout that they use to inflict whatever, you know, exercise-induced muscle damage. There are differences in gender. There are differences in exercise protocols. There are differences in time between repeated exercise bouts. And again, I mean, this is the challenge that researchers face. I'm not trying to pick on anybody. Rather, I'm just trying to recognize that it's it's really hard to take a set of studies and and draw findings from a set of vastly divergent, in some cases, studies. Another takeaway is that you, you need to take the literature with a grain of salt and appreciate each study's limitations. And this comes with something we'll talk about later, which is interpreting literature. Hmm. Okay. So <clears throat> just a couple more here, but again, relevant to this whole idea that aging is the is the only baddie in the mix here. So 2019, so we're much more recent now, Yassar and uh, colleagues looked at both young and older athletes and their recovery from peak power output after a single sprint intensity session. And this took place across the board, both in young and older after three days. What's interesting here is that this, this doesn't really stand up when it comes to high intensity training. So the difference between doing short all out sprints versus longer repeated VO2 max efforts, something gets lost in translation. The, the recovery effects are different and my takeaway because of that is that even differences in high intensity workouts can blur those lines of recovery between older and younger athletes. You change one thing, mm. take it down from a sprint intensity down to a VO2 max intensity, which isn't a huge change. And it, and it changes the, the recovery time course and, and characteristics of that, that recovery process. Mm. And then, uh, Balmart 2015, <laughs> another, another wrench in the gears here suggests genetic components and therefore an individual response to exercise-induced muscle damage, which means that regardless of age, and we've seen this, some athletes bounce back faster. So there is a genetic component at work here. Which makes me wonder too, when you talk, when you talk about genetic components, especially, you know, after some period of time in life, um, gene expression, right? Mm -hmm. So what were the patterns of gene expression in the person's <sighs> life leading up to this point? That's, I mean, some of this might be more plastic than we think. So just remember that when we talk about genetic components, it doesn't mean that, oh, this was fixed from birth and mm -hmm. you can't do anything about it. Cause a lot of times these genes are actually plastic and how, what you do in your life, what you experience in your life can affect, uh, when and how these, and if these genes are expressed and that can determine, you know, kind of genetic basis for some of these things too. So mm -hmm. it's an interesting to facet to consider on that. Yeah, which ties back to the original uh, premise of kind of what we're approaching here is if you train more, does that change over time? And that could very mm -hmm. well be a, a larger or a, a significant portion of it. Mm -hmm. So interesting. Okay. And and finally, I'll close this out with, with just another possibility to consider is that, that we've seen recently and probably more than recently, but recent to me, differences in fiber composition can actually yield different recovery timelines. So- in, in general, fast twitch fibers have been demonstrated to take longer to recover than slow twitch fibers. And, and it makes mm -hmm. sense on a number of levels. The, the study that I looked at in particular linked as well is the, they looked at the recovery of torque at max voluntary contraction. So as hard as you can push it, you know, voluntarily, you're not being forced into this, just, just drive on, Oh, whatever. It was probably a, an ergometer or something. I can't remember. But the max voluntary contraction was fully recovered in the athletes who were predominantly slow twitch. And I think it was like a 60-40 split. After 20 mm -hmm. minutes, they could go again and they could muster the same strength of contraction. Whereas five hours later, 
the athletes who were predominantly higher in the fast twitch fibers still hadn't recovered. I mean, that's a difference of what, 15 times? That, that's a, it's an enormous difference just because their fiber composition is slightly different from that of the people they were compared to. Hmm. A little fast twitch fibers. <laughs> yeah. So, so I rest my case there. I, I, I think I, I hope I've at least established a reasonable doubt. We can't pin all this on age. We can't simply say age is why. Interesting. I I really wish we could have punctuated that with like the law and lord the law and order kunk kunk. Yeah. Let's <laughs> yeah, totally. say we need a gavel in post. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Vaccine, we need to get Chad a gavel. Yeah. <laughs> I have spoken. <laughs> <laughs> that would be awesome. Uh, thanks, Chad. That was awesome. Thanks for doing all that research and looking into that. Sure. I mean, uh, and, and I'm sure relevant. Yeah, exactly. Mm, Thank you. Yeah, that's exactly pushing, what I was going to say there. Here, so, yeah. Yeah. So, um, Scott says, I'm signed up for the High Cascades 100 in July. That's a race that I've wanted to do for a long time, too. Um, even though it's a long race, I really like the riding and bend in that region, and it's super cool. Um, Alex, have you ever wanted to do this one by chance? Uh, I've, heard of, I've it? heard of it, yeah. Um, I feel like any mountain bike race, especially in bend, I'd be down for. I was just surprised to hear you want to do something with 100 at the end. I know. Right. I usually like, I usually like short stuff, but keep me in Bend and I'm happy. So Bend, Oregon is where we're talking about where this race, or I shouldn't say it happens in Bend, but in that region. So, um, he wants to do this race in July. And Scott says, I understand from listening to the podcast that the trainer road program in and of itself can substitute for a lot of volume. So I'm not necessarily worried about the distance, but what, and Nate's proven this with doing Leadville with, you know, just two hour training rides, tons of athletes have, uh, we've done podcasts with two different lead or athletes that have done like seriously impressive times at Leadville following our plans to the T. Um, you know, so yeah, an easy way to check this is Strava has a little thing where it like shows you 25 watt bands. If you go outside rides, check that zero to 25 band. And Ooh. like when you're on trainer road, you're pedaling the entire time. So anything that's in that zero to 25 band, like you could technically tack that onto your trainer road time. And that would be your outside ride time. Yeah. Yeah. So. We have the, and we have the coasting power zone that you can see mm-hmm. within trainer road too. And when you're riding a mountain bike in particular, the coasting is high. It happens. Yeah. It's just it's just the way it goes. Um, otherwise, you'd crash a lot if you're trying to pedal through everything. So absolutely, definitely uh, time efficient. Yep. Yeah, so yeah, absolutely. Uh, so Scott says, what concerns me is the ability to ride 100 miles on about 85% single track. I know that readiness for that type of riding can only be accomplished through doing it. That's debatable to a certain extent there. Um, yet riding a lot of single track to prepare for the race would mean foregoing time spent on trainer road valid concern that he has here. So I'm assuming <laughs> I'll have to give up one or the other single track or trainer road time. And how do you recommend I approach this? Thanks for the podcast and training program, all the stars. So we've kind of talked about this before within the context of a different race and that's park city point to point. Uh, that race is amazing. It's like uh five star trails, just like about 76 of them over and over again. Like you just get to, it's so cool. Um, it doesn't repeat itself and you cover all the trails in the park city area. And I think that that race, I want to say the year we did it, they were proud because it had less than 2% single track and it was 76 miles. So when you break that down, that's like, you know, a mile of, of trail that isn't single track or even less than that. So it's like, it's substantial, uh, in terms of the load that you get from riding single track. Um, uh, Amber, you recently <laughs> have been focusing on mountain biking. And did you notice 
I guess, an increased load on yourself when you are riding single track compared to even fire road or, of course, road. Yeah, I'm actually really excited to pick Alex's brain on this because this is exactly what, you know, I'm looking at doing to prepare for Cape Epic. And for me, I'm a, I'm a beginner mountain biker. So while I have a strong engine from my career on the road, the skill sets that are demanded to, to ride mountain bikes effectively on single track are all new to me. So all of, I haven't developed that cognitive efficiency in terms of those skills. So when I'm trying to learn those skills, it's a very, very high cognitive load at this point in time. Eventually that load will go down as I get better and better at those skills and I develop that cognitive efficiency with them. But right now it's very high. And so I have to be really careful about right now it makes a lot more sense for me to kind of parse, right? So I'm going to do my interval training during one workout, and then I'm going to use another workout to completely focus on skills only. And even within that workout, I have to make sure that I'm tackling the more taxing skills early on in the ride when I'm really fresh. So I can be super focused and super aware. And the more fatigue that I accumulate over the course of that workout, the more difficult it's going to be for me to make good decisions and negotiate terrain really well. So I'm going to have to dial back on how complex the skills are that I'm tackling towards the end of a workout like that. But I too would love to hear exactly the best way to go about this because this is going to be really useful for me. (laughs) Alex, take it Uh, away. (laughs) uh, I I guess we should back up with the original question of trainer road time versus single track time. Um, i think Amber is taking the perfect approach. The way I do it is anything that's an interval workout is a work day. Like for me, I even tell myself like we were going back to being boring and mundane, uh, <laughs> that, these, that these can be boring and days. excellent. <laughs> oh. um, so like, even if it's going up and down a hill, you know, if it's the perfect hill for that workout, like a lot of my workouts are just out and backs and repeats on a hill and go home. Like those are the days where it's just like, me and my power meter, like, got to hit the numbers. On endurance days, I try to do most of those on the mountain bike, on the dirt, to try to be familiar. And Jonathan, you and I were talking about this. You went for your first, like, mountain bike ride in a while yesterday, and you felt like a rusty bucket. So I was Bambi on ice. I was using the back brake instead of the front brake. I was sliding out everywhere for the first hour. Who does was, that? I know. <laughs> I don't even know what that means. <laughs> I was, it was so bad for the first hour. It's it, when you don't do it, you fall out of practice really quickly and everything is like, and, and it's even worse if you have some level of experience. I don't know if you've noticed this, Alex, but like, cause then your speed is still the same. You're still going really fast, but you can't cash those checks. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> so you can't back it up and then you find yourself in sticky situations. It got better as the ride went on, but yeah. And then endurance rides are awesome for that. That's a really good point because it's it's less precise. Like, you know, you don't have to hit such a tight window with your interval structure. So you can do that. Right. Yeah. I mean, for me, like zone two rides, I think like when I'm in season, the range is like 80 to hundred Watts of like where I need to be. So it's, it's really easy for that window to hit it on a mountain bike and you still have to choose like correct trails, right? Like if you're going up something super steep where you have to put out 400 Watts to get up it, it's probably not the best, but I also, want to go back to like you don't have to ride single track to be fast at single track there's like overarching skills of mountain biking that you can get better at on any trail and my first recommendation is if yours your big goals are mountain bike oriented try to do everything on the mountain bike put that bike on your trainer do that bike like i ride my mountain bike on the road for intervals like 
then there's no doubt in my mind that I, the power I'm putting out in training is the power that I have on race day. So I spend probably 85, 90% of time on my race bike because that's the bike I do all my work on. And then that's kind of the first step to getting better on it on the dirt is you are already comfortable in that position. You're comfortable with the flat bars. You're comfortable with the reach, anything that's changed on that mountain bike. So that when you get to the trails, that's one less barrier in the way of you getting faster at descending. <clears throat> and then once you get out on the trail, there's so many things. And I've run into this with my fiance. Jenna's really gotten into mountain biking recently. And I kind of have to put a filter on because it's like I could be like, oh, you know, weight your outside foot, tilt your hips, you know, put a little pressure on your inside. It's like and trying to remember all those things all at once is just super overwhelming. So I try to do one thing at a time. Right. So it's like, OK, if I'm riding, I want to focus on having my heels down today. OK, through corners, I want to make sure I'm pointing my hips. And I've had a little bit of fun recently with downhill segments in the area. Obviously, do it safely. Don't go crashing now. But like you can use those segments on Strava to kind of see how you're improving. And I can use a section, even if you make them private segments, you know, like there's like these S turns that you really want to get better at. You can time it top to bottom and just kind of see how you're improving with different techniques, right? Like sometimes it feels slower to go fast because we, we associate violence with speed, whereas going through a corner smoother can actually be faster a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. So I try to focus on slow in fast out especially on tighter stuff. So I think having a focus for the ride, like, okay, today I'm going to really focus on pointing my hips through the corners. Okay. Today I'm going to really focus on heavy feet, light hands. Okay. Today I'm going to focus on roots. You know, I'm going to ride a trail that's super rooty and I'm going to see how I get over that. And much like with training, as you get closer to the event, you can get more specific. So once you've mastered like those overarching skills of cornering and carrying speed and pumping the trail you can start riding more single track and you can realize like all the skills within that and i think a common misconception within single track is that there's only one line right because it's a really small trail but as you know jonathan like within a single track you can still late apex apex early apex to set yourself up properly like you can ride to the edge of that trail and through it and i think that just takes experience so as your training gets more specific so can the descents you're doing to get ready for your, your target event. Yeah. To break things down very literally with everybody. If you're listening to this right now, think of this, when you ride on the road, are you deviating from your line without any sort of cause to do that? When you're just riding down the road, you can probably ride on that white line or within six inches of other side of, of the other side of that white line for your entire ride. If you didn't have any reason to bump you from that, like dodging something or anything else. And you wouldn't even think twice about it. You would just be riding. And so if you think about a single track, inherently, there's nothing truly complex about it in the sense that it's not too narrow. You know, if anything, it's right within your range and your bandwidth. However, what it is, it's, it's upstairs. Like when you're riding on that, everything, the consequences get more severe. And as a result, you're running way more feedback loops on every single thing that's occurring, whether that's in your body or your bike you're running it through like a triple redundancy check, right? Like, are you sure that's good? Are you sure that's good? Are you sure that's good? And that adds like a whole lot of drain to a person when they're trying to ride single track, then it makes it so that you miss the right moves on the other things. So I can't, I can't emphasize that point that Alex just made enough time on single track will not 
help you necessarily. Instead, it's figuring out all the small skills that you need on a bike to have your in your tool belt, so to speak, so that you're ready to use them so that those become truly subconscious. And then at that level, then you aren't running those feedback loops over those things. And, and that's what really gets better. Because if you think about it, riding a single track, that's absolutely fine. Almost everybody that rides a bike can ride a bike within that space. But it really comes down to making sure that you have the skills ready and automatic so that you can do that sort of a thing. And they don't have to be like Danny McCaskill level skills. We aren't talking anything crazy here. It's just that when you go through a turn, you know that your outside foot's down and it's just down because you've practiced it enough. It's when you, when you're going through anything like that, you know, where to look and you know how to weight your bike. It's just the simple things. Um, watch the video that we've made of how to become a faster mountain biker with Lee McCormick. He goes through some great insight on how to kind of view things from a different perspective. And it will really break down a lot of barriers and drop your cognitive load when you ride. <clears throat> Something that, Alex just said totally carries over to what Lee says is that, what is it? Uh, slow is smooth, smooth is fast. Mm -hmm. That idea, I, I personally, I've reframed it as slow as controlled, controlled is fast. That resonates mm -hmm. better with me, but I like that idea. And really interestingly, Alex, you pointed out that you're basically just taking whatever lane and narrowing the width, but you still have movement within that lane. I think people lose sight of it. They, they hear single track and they think they have to walk this razor's edge and they don't. I mean, even if it's just four inches wide, that's four inches you can move to set up for a turn, four inches you can just slightly later when you can exit that turn. But I, I really mm -hmm. appreciate that perspective. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Uh, two last points. One, get a dropper post. It will help you. I know some people yes. say that like, oh, I don't need a dropper post here. And I think that's a mentality of having a rigid post. And I, you know, this is just my personal opinion, but I would argue even on that smooth single track, if I gave you a dropper post, you could do it faster just because you don't need it to get through the trail. I think it's a similar point to Jonathan. Like you could ride on the white line all day, but there you can go faster with a dropper post in almost every scenario, even if you don't need it. Um, can two, I draw I a quick parallel to that, Alex, really yeah. quick? It's the same concept of, I don't need carbs when I work out. I don't need to fuel my workouts. True. You might be able to get through that workout today, but that doesn't mean that you're going to get through it any better. And if you would just give yourself that help, like the dropper post makes such a difference. It's crazy. It just makes everything. It basically cuts out all those feedback loops that you would have had to run of, is this going to make me die or not? <laughs> yeah. You know, those go away because it's amazing what happens when your saddle is a bit lower. It's just, it's, it's so nice. So. And when learning to Amber's point, I think it brings down that cognitive load because you have more room to forgive yourself with mistakes without feeling like you're going to get bucked off the bike. Um, mm -hmm. Something else that Nate did when he was working on descending was getting an e-bike for recovery day. So if that's an option that's available to you, that's super awesome because you can still do it at a really low intensity and recovery days are a great time to just kind of shoot to the top of a trail and descend down it. I don't recommend crashing and, and breaking your ribs like he did, but <laughs> <laughs> it's true. That was a very bad approach. <laughs> it's a little counterproductive. <laughs> yeah. But the, to, to add a point to this, I see a lot of people thinking like, Oh, well, I need to get used to descending when I'm blown, when I'm like VO2 through the roof and then drop into a descent. And that's not a good learning environment. There are good learning environments and then there's a race environment and favor the learning environment and give yourself all the room that you can have to be able to learn 
So then you'll be better prepared for the race environment. I promise you, if you try to learn under crazy stress at all times, you are going to miss so many key details that you would otherwise pick up. Yeah. So, and to be clear when, when we do that in training, and I definitely do that when you send it into a trail pinned, the goal is to reiterate muscle memory. You've already taught yourself. It is not to learn new tricks. It is to <laughs> reinforce what you've already done in a fatigue state. So it's kind of reinforcing that you've done the work because the muscle memory should kick in regardless of what your heart rate is. And you should be able to descend that trail pretty close to the same. Mm -hmm. If anything new comes up in those moments, that's when we've crashed. Like, <laughs> right. Like, like when you're really above your limits and you're going through and something unexpected comes up, that's, that's when you crash. So, mm -hmm. so yeah. And it won't be a perfect awesome process. There'll be, there'll be slide outs and crashes and you'll go into a corner and realize you're going too fast and you'll go straight through it. It happens. It happens to all of us. I guarantee you, I don't descend perfect all the time. I blew five turns yesterday. So completely <laughs> blew them like off the trail of panic that I was going to slam into a rock or something. So happens to everybody. Uh, mm -hmm. let's go into some rapid fire questions. Um, and by the way, this just makes me super excited to see your, uh, see you, Amber, I know that I'm sure that you like the mountain bike, but to see you really like truly mesh and like glow with the mountain bike to like really enjoy it, it's going to be awesome. So <laughs> I'm um, so excited. It's, it's really fun for me because it's, it's a totally new thing that I'm not good at yet. And you guys hear me say this all the time, but I love the process of getting better at something. So this is such a cool path to be on. Yeah, I'm excited. It's going to be great. So, uh, okay. Rapid fire ones. Uh, this one from Brian says lightning round. What's the status of the science of getting faster podcast? Uh, I put this one in intentionally. Uh, we just recorded two episodes, correct? Chad with, uh, mm -hmm. Heal Pofay. Heal Pofay. Yeah. Yep. Uh, Dr. Heal Pofay, Dr. Tim Podlegar, we've also recorded with and Dr. Chris Minson. And we actually have plans to publish those soon. So to launch the podcast relatively soon. So I'm not going to put a, a time on it right now, just because there are some development tasks and some other things that need to go in line behind this. Um, but they're recorded and we're getting close and we're excited to launch it. So we'll have three podcasts within the trainer road podcast network. Additionally, I want to take this opportunity to ask people, um, uh, todos, todos los que hablan español, if you are interested in Spanish podcasts from us as well, please let us know. Um, we have an idea to start doing the ask a cycling coach podcast in Spanish as well. So with myself and then Sophia being my co-host, which would be a lot of fun. So, um, so if you are interested, please give us some votes of interest. So then we can kind of quantify what the interest is and demand is for that. And then we can build that out. So if you'd be interested in a Spanish language, uh, podcast for this, please let us know uh, if there are interests for other languages, of course, we'd also like to do that as well. Um, and we'd like to find a way to do that. Spanish is the one that's most close within our bandwidth. Um, so that's what we're looking at, but exciting stuff. And the train road podcast network will just continue to grow. It's good stuff. So, uh, okay. Brendan says, uh, Basically, I'll read this one and I'll try to summarize, uh, perhaps not. But Brandon says, a number of times on the podcast, you've mentioned that originally there was a longer endurance style right at the end of the week of some of your plans, but people weren't doing them. So you wrap them out or so you swap them out for shorter sweet spot workouts in the weekly tips. You still mention which endurance ride I am guessing used to be part of the plan. Correct. It's still there. If you want to do it and you have the extra time and you want to do an endurance ride, it's there. Read the weekly tips. So Brandon says, my question is this, which ride would be more beneficial? I actually have the time to do the longer ride on Sunday. If it would be more, or if it would be better for me overall, it mentions the goals, a triathlete focusing on Olympic distance racing in the 2021 season, working towards full Ironman in 2022. Um, so, uh, 
Chad, what say you on this one? Uh, Brendan, it's up to you and, and it's up to you. And I know it sounds like I'm passing the buck here, but you have to decide what limits you. And I'm not necessarily talking about limiters in terms of performance. Uh, that'll get more important as you move through the, the training phases right now you're in the base phase. It's, it's a little more flexible. So I would rel- relate your limiters more to your goals and your desires. Uh, and I'll, I'll talk about that a little bit after I explain something. Uh, we're talking the difference between basically aerobic endurance and muscle endurance. So the difference between long stuff done at, you know, 60, 65, maybe 70% of your FTP versus muscle endurance stuff done anywhere from 85 up to geez, 100, 105, let's say, but either way, pretty close to your, your threshold. So first let me explain the difference between those two things. And maybe that'll help you decide where you need to steer more of your focus. So aerobic endurance is is largely oxidative. So it's aerobic. It's typically low in intensity. It's low in the power output. It's long in duration. And therefore, the recovery requirements are more lax. By comparison, mus- muscle endurance or muscular endurance is more glycolytic, uses more muscle glycogen, uses more blood glucose, etc. So more sugar is being utilized, moderate in intensity, moderate in power output, moderate in duration because of that. And it has, it carries stricter recovery requirements. So alternatively, this could be described as it's metabolic versus muscular stress. And and both aerobic endurance and muscle endurance have a bit of each. But if you see it in terms of aerobic endurance inflicts oxidative stress, oxidative damage, whereas muscle endurance inflicts muscle stress and contraction induced damage. And, and, And the distinction there, or the most important distinction there being that recovery from each of these involves very different mechanisms. So they're not interchangeable. These, these, these are not both apples. In fact, they're probably not even different types of apples or there's almost apples <laughs> and oranges here. So you with, with that in mind, need to ask yourself, what do you need or perhaps just want to be good or better at? And again, you're in the base phase and that's a pretty accommodating phase to be in. The events are usually far enough off. So you've got a lot of time to make mistakes. Should you make them or maybe just, prioritize something at the high end of things when it really didn't need to be prioritized, whatever. If you're going to make mistakes, do it now. If you're going to experiment, do it now. And maybe, just maybe, decide simply based on which you enjoy to do or which you enjoy doing. It it, it can be maybe a question of adherence and consistency. Even if these aren't problems, Mm -hmm. which workout do you look forward to doing more because you're going to get benefit from both of them. And if you have any struggle whatsoever with sticking to the workouts or the structure of the workouts, maybe you're doing the long ones, but you're cutting them short because you get bored. Maybe you're doing the shorter ones at higher intensity, but you're lowering the intensity because it's too high or you're ducking out of the intervals early or chopping up the intervals because you just can't hang in there. Figure out, you know, right now I just want to enjoy my workouts more. I'll get to the harder stuff and I'll make myself gut those out later. Right now, I just want to establish consistency. I just want to spend time on the bike. I just want to derive some benefit. Mm. Uh, well said, Chad. I like it. Uh, Amber, this next one, I'm going to direct toward you quick hitter. How am I supposed to eat during workouts like Dardanelles and Dardanelles minus two. And that one's for those that don't know is four by 12 with 30 second breaks in between four by 12 threshold. No, no, so. no. I'm jumping in. This one's mine. <laughs> Oh, okay. Amber, forgive me. Amber can follow, but okay, go, go, Chad, when, go. I, when we first read this question, I heard Dardanelles and I know Dardanelles is a solid 50 minutes worth of work. So I was like, yeah, yeah. no, that, that's a solid, that's a, that's a reasonable question. How do you get through 50 minutes of work and find time to eat? And then I looked at Dardanelles minus two and Andrew, you've got three 30 second breaks, <laughs> bro. If that's not enough time to eat, I don't, I don't know what you're looking for. I mean, that's, 
It takes a long time that's to make enough. the charcuterie board mid-ride, Chad. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> that's why those are there. That's part of the reason they're there. Yeah. They, yeah, they give you a little bit of recovery from the muscular stress. They give you a little bit of uh, distraction from the, the cognitive load. But that's a good opportunity to eat. And they're scheduled pretty strategically. So, I mean, that you shouldn't really mm. need to eat at more frequent <laughs> intervals over the course of a 50-minute workout. Good point. Uh, what about eating during steady state work, Amber? What are your thoughts? Um, well, I'm just going to second what Chad said. That's <laughs> dead on. Um, and you can definitely eat during steady state work. It just depends on how how you feel about it, right? Because that's some, sometimes that's something you have to learn how to do and, and train yourself to be able to do. Um, I learned I have a really hard time breathing through my nose because I have a deviated septum. So if I'm working really hard and I'm at a high level of ventilatory, like over my ventilatory threshold, and I try to eat something solid, it's really, really hard for me to chew and swallow because it's hard for me to get enough air through my nose. Um, so that's something that I know about myself. So during, if I need to eat during steady state where I'm above ventilatory threshold, I might, you know, focus on taking smaller sips of water from my bottle or of mix from my bottle more frequently. So it's something that to experiment with and know that it is another type of learning curve and you can get better at that. Um, but I think the main thing is just signaling to your brain that you can keep writing those checks because you have deposits coming in. So if you're, mm-hmm. you can kind of look at a workout like this and say, okay, I have so many intervals. You could, you could pace it out by time, set, a, set an alarm on your computer so that you're eating every 15 to 20 minutes, 30 minutes, depending on what works for you. Or you can do it by interval. Like in this case, it's perfect. You have these quick interval recoveries where you can grab a gel, grab a block, whatever it is that's going to work for you. But there's different ways of parsing it up. And it's just a matter of what's going to, what's going to help you and what's going to make sure that your brain gets that consistent signal that, Hey, I can, I can handle this next interval. Cause I just had a nice hit of carbohydrate and we're ready to go. It's all about breath sips for me. I time it with my breath. Yeah. I just, take out when I'm breathing in, I continue to breathe in through my nose. And then at that point, I just give myself a quick squeeze of water and then I'll do one more and one more. And I might not drop the bottle from like, you know, where I would be drinking from it during that time, but that's how I do it. Just to, if I'm really like on the rivet and I need to get something in, that's how I do it. Just time it. Don't, and that, the last thing you want to do is drink so that you're like not taking a breath for three seconds <laughs> while you're in the middle yes. of doing something. Cause then that'll just, <laughs> Pop goes the weasel. You've blown up. So but that oh, that's, also that's just hypoxic something. training, Jonathan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Intentional, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that points to something that we maybe haven't covered yet is you have to be selective on what it is you're going to try to eat at this time. Uh-huh. So so this isn't going to be the big solid boluses of food that you have to really gnaw on to get down. You're not working at yeah. 70% or below you're gassing it right now. So it's going to have to be mm-hmm. probably gels in the most solid state, but probably liquids, stuff you can get mm-hmm. in, get in you easily and will digest easily because a lot of your resources are being devoted to work, not digestion. Yeah, definitely not the time to try to eat like a dry crumbly stroop waffle is in the middle of that for sure. <laughs> that one no. is just going to make you choke. Um, if, if anybody's been playing the trainer road drinking game by this time, I fear for your safety because we've mentioned cognitive load so many times, but, uh, to give you one more, uh, Keegan's favorite trick is he calls it the, the squirrel pouch thing. He just takes his cliff blocks or whatever he has goo blocks. I don't, I don't know, but he, he puts them in his cheek. Right. And then he just lets it either water down much to his dentist dismay or to that point, like he'll just bite off a small chunk of it and then put it back into his cheek and let it sit there. That's another option too. If you, if you want to do that, but I get all my stuff through liquid, uh, almost entirely. And then gels, um, yeah. And, and the gels can be pretty tricky too. So, yeah. 
just stick to, to liquid. <clears throat> I use the SIS gels, which have the liquid mixed in, and I'll just shoot one of those. Um, during workouts like this, I'll try to space it out into smaller sips. So I'll shoot for every five minutes to take um, calories from my drink. I mm. I personally can't do blocks anything over endurance. Just yeah. can't chew and not breathe and swallow and choke. I was thinking about this while during my ride the other day. We really need to rethink the gel packaging. It's not very efficient. Like it's kind of hard to be able to get like all the gel out and to mm-hmm. be able to do it. Like there needs to be a better option. Um, we're, we're doing like we put people on the moon. We need to figure this out. It's a small thing. I think we can do it. So <laughs> I actually assume less carbs from a gel for that exact reason. Yes, me too. I've done that before too. Like I didn't get all that gel. So it's actually 18 instead of 20. It's ridiculous. So this is awesome. Um, welcome to my confused head. Not nothing. It's not nothing. I mean, those, those <laughs> cis gels that you're talking about are, those clear the package really well. Cause I go back and I re-squeeze mm-hmm. them out of habit and there's mm-hmm. virtually nothing left in them. And actually the, I think it's cause it's hand size. Well. Ah, like that could be full, shape of the packaging. Full, like squeeze on it. What yeah. I don't like also, is they don't have the little retainer. I really like the, I think, mm-hmm. was it Cliff that built on the little retainer the, for the top? Yeah. I've had to turn yeah. around yeah, so many times because my cap goes, <laughs> <laughs> flies off. Yeah. You know, you know, one cool thing about SIS too is because it's so liquidy, you can actually just open it up. And I've done this before, but I keep it in my mouth there. If I'm like, if it's like in the middle of a race and I need to have my hands on the bars and I'm going through bumps, mm-hmm. you can actually just suck the gel up out of it mm-hmm. because it is, is so liquid, you know, like if there's low viscosity. So you can actually, if, if liquid is a word, liquidous. So. Li- <laughs> so you're basically ner- <laughs> you know nursing I- off of it for a while. Yeah. <laughs> yes, Chad, exactly right. Yeah, yeah. Baby in a bottle basically, but you can, you can, you can also like, uh, do that to get the gel in. And the same thing strangely works on the other end of the spectrum really easily. Like with the Martin gels that are basically just like jello that's been kind of smashed up and put back into a package. That's like the consistency you have there. And because it's thicker, it's actually, you can do the same thing. You can suck that gel out of the wrapper instead of trying to squeeze it out. Cause I know this is probably unpleasant for a lot of people, but it's actually like a really big thing, especially if you're doing something like gravel riding or riding in a pack or mountain biking where control Mm -hmm. is important. You can't just take both hands off at any moment. So, yeah. And the nice thing about the SIS gels is they're supposed to be not followed by water. Like that's why they're so viscous is they have water mixed in. So the nice thing about those is most gels are designed. So you follow it up with water. So in workouts, it's nice to have it already mixed in. So it's just a a one-stop shop if you're not doing it through your bottle. We're going through these rapid fire questions so fast. I'm just not sure how we're (laughs) (laughs) making through. Okay. Jeremiah says, yeah, I just had a really disappointing ram test result and I came in pretty tired and not well fed. So I should have expected this, but what do I do now? Um, yeah, who wants to take this one? There's, there's quite a few notes that we have. Uh, Can I kick this off? Cause I have some, uh, some damage to start undoing. So yeah. a, n- a number of times I've said just because you can doesn't mean you should. And this is another situation to which that applies. You don't need carbohydrate to get through this workout, but just because you don't need it doesn't mean you can't benefit from it. So there are circumstances where, say, the night before you do deplete your glycogen sores and for whatever reason you don't replenish them and the next morning you get up fasted and you hop on the bike. In that case, no, you probably actually definitely need it to get through the workout. But in all other cases, you probably don't. But just because you can doesn't mean you should. So 
my excuse for this has always been that I'm I'm amongst the the crowd that I refer to as touchy tummy folks, and that I straight out of bed, I can't even <laughs> visuals, <laughs> visuals, I can't even think about food. I, I mean, I get up I get up fairly early, so let's say four thirty, and I'm on the bike by five five a.m. four thirty, I can't think about food, let alone ingest it. Then when I get on the bike, I start doing some work, and it, it compounds the problem, but. I know, I recognize the benefit in ingesting some carbohydrate over the course of these higher intensity, though short, rides. And I've adopted what many people refer to as a low and slow approach to carbohydrate intake. You know, I started with things as simple as bananas or a part of a gel or a carbohydrate drink mixed pretty dilute, or just knowing that the carbohydrate drinks there, but I'm probably only going to hit a couple sips of it. Fruit juice worked for a while. I hear dates are all the rage at the moment, but Something, Green something bananas. that you just, yeah, you just start with it and and grow your tolerance because now I'm still not good straight out of bed. I'm doing my rides a little bit later, but now I can get down a full liter size bottle that includes on the order of about 320 calories of carbohydrate fluid, something I couldn't even imagined doing six months ago, but now Absolutely. I can do it. Okay, that, that's one point. Another point, Amber often talks about signaling and I kind of want to elaborate that on that, just in the terms of the catabolic versus the anabolic end of things. That's not necessarily what she's talking about. I think she's talking about more about cognitive signaling. And in any case, mm -hmm. let me just expand on this a little bit. Understand that workouts are catabolic, meaning they break things down. Largely that's energy stores, mm -hmm. but if you push it too far, that can be muscle tissue, which is absolutely undesirable. There's really no circumstance under which people want to break down muscle tissue. Recovery on the other side of thing is an anabolic process. We're restocking those energy supplies we've depleted. We're giving our body the materials it needs to rebuild. We're providing protein and carbohydrate that help us foster performance improvement, make, make our muscles stronger and better. And mm -hmm. that is entirely requisite on nutrition. We, you, you can't do that without nutrition. Nutrition is what does that. So there is a balance between this catabolic and anabolic process, these processes before, during, and after. It's not just something that you can kind of catch up on after the workout. You can, and, and it will work, but I'm going to say it's not optimal. It's not the way to go about it. Mm -hmm. If I may continue. the I, I just have a couple Please. more points here. I know I'm kind of running this <laughs> you one. You may, sir. And it is not, it is not gotcha. rapid fire. The, also consider your workout quality because it, there are some intervals that, and I'm, I'm thinking, I'm looking at you, sweet spot. It's they just get tougher and tougher and tougher as you run lower and lower on fuel. And you get to that last interval and it is such a slugfest that it can, it can kind of put you in a bad place. The idea of doing that workout again is not, not mm -hmm. favorable. You're not looking forward to that by any stretch of the imagination. Also, this is largely intensity dependent. I'm not saying that if you get up in the morning, you had a full dinner, you didn't deplete, you're fully nourished, you're coming off of an overnight fast, you don't feel like eating, but all you're doing is 60 minutes of pettit. You don't necessarily mm -hmm. have to hit the carbohydrate fluid. I'm not saying you can't, but mm -hmm. if it's not necessary in some workouts, those lower intensity workouts, I get it, but a ramp test is not that. It's simply mm -hmm. not that. Yes, it is a short workout. It doesn't last long, but it's high intensity. And there are a lot of benefits that come from the nourishment. And mm -hmm. if not during, mm -hmm. certainly post. So even if you can't, for whatever reason, literally stomach some sort of intake prior to a workout like that, get on it promptly after. And then finally, let me just close with 
This was an interesting finding. I just came across this in research for something else, and I don't even know if the math or the physics makes sense, but it is thought-provoking. And it pointed out that the glycogen cost for 45 minutes at a maximal lactate steady-state water, so basically the, the power you put out at FTP, very close facsimile, assuming you're a rider at three to four, 3.4 watts per kilogram, and this is why it was interesting because that's about where I am right now, with a working efficiency of 20%, which is pretty fair, will deplete your liver and your muscle glycogen stores by 50%. I mean, that's a hefty toll Whoa. for something that just took 45 minutes at not a crazy high power output. Exactly. Wow. So, you know, whether or not that stands up, I don't know. But I, I do think it makes a case for the fact that it probably utilizes more stored energy than we recognize. And if you compound oh, yeah. that with a morning workout and your liver glycogen's already depleted from overnight, I'm sure you're yeah. looking at a higher mm -hmm. percentage. Mm -hmm. uh, I look at this too. If this is like, we kind of went back and we looked at like, if this is a regular thing of not fueling properly, then in my mind, this is an accurate FTP to start with as you try putting those carbohydrates in. It's kind of like how we suggest not to like rest for a ramp test or, you know, do anything special because you have to train to that FTP. So if you're still learning how to incorporate carbohydrates into your ride, I would say that FTP is an accurate point to start at with this block of training as you try to fuel it. And then... Jonathan just experienced this again with his last workout where it he was at 105% of FTP and he was praising the fact that his FTP is probably low right now. So it's like if you get to that last week and you're at that point, then you retest with your new fueling strategy and you won't only see the fitness gains, but you'll see the fueling gains as well. And then you can go from there. So I would argue it's almost if this is a, you know, not a rare occurrence and this is how you approach training that it would still be an accurate number to train off of. Yeah, there, there's too much pressure that all of us put on ourselves to get the truest and most accurate representation of our best selves in our best moment. There, there, I, I, I honestly believe that because as you go throughout a training plan, you are not going to be your best at your best moment in your best circumstances every single day. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't perform to that level. Don't get me wrong. You, you can, but there's, there is value in it. Like, or I should say, don't think that just because your test isn't where you thought you were going to be, that it's now useless or that's a bad value. That's one thing I want to point off, point out right off the top. So I just went through sweet spot base, high volume one, and I did a test right after being sick. I knew that, that I wasn't going to have some skyrocketed high FTP, but I was like, you know what, this is going to be what I need to be able to hit my marks with consistency and establish habits that are going to help me throughout the year. So there were other intentions behind it. So there's a lot to it. Now, in terms of what you, what do you do now? It's really simple, Jeremiah. So, uh, number one, do your workouts and see how they feel. And if they feel like they are so easy that you're genuinely bored, then you can, uh, then you can try to do redo a ramp test. Okay. And redo that ramp test and fuel like we're talking about and see where you go. If you still feel like that test isn't exactly where you need to be, or for some reason that, that you're just not being able to fulfill your potential with that, go through your workouts and see after a week or two, how you feel, because many times it feels easy on the day, but then two weeks down the road, after you've done all that training cumulatively, mm -hmm. it adds up and suddenly you're like, uh Oh, this is a little too much. Yeah. So, and then in that case, if it feels too low, then manually bump things up by 2%, no more than that and see how that feels and go through a week of training at plus 2%, maybe 3% if you're really feeling like it's really easy and see how that feels and then go through there. That's the, the way to do it. So, but above all, don't attach that result to your training, your 
self-worth or anything else that we've talked about plenty of times on the podcast. It's simply a training benchmark to anchor your training so that you can get productive training. So hopefully that's a a good guide on how to step back from there. What's that? I was going to say, again, we say this, but we are also guilty of such things. So we've all wanted our rant test to say a certain number. So (laughs) yep, we're we're kind of working on it ourselves. Yep. We're certainly no example so of perfection true. here. We're, that's why we rely on science, not ourselves. If we relied <laughs> on ourselves, we'd all be <laughs> tied up in knots over here. So, uh, Kai's question says, you've covered the fact that low volume clans can build FTP, but can they also maintain FTP? And he's mentioning in this case, a mid volume plan. If that FTP was or from a mid volume plan. So going from mid volume, dropping to low volume, can that low volume plan maintain the fitness? Um, and then he says also, if that FTP was built with relatively high volume. So once again, even though in this case, we're talking about building it with a mid volume, dropping to low volume, we're talking about relativity. So apply that to your own circumstances as you're listening. Now, an example going from 12 hours per week to six hours per week, would this maintenance only be effective for a certain period or is it indefinite? I recall an episode where you gave advice to a Danish cyclist that had to reduce his training significantly due to work obligations but I don't remember if this was with regard to his VO two max or general FTP. So Melsi from Kai. Um, so first things first, this is a great opportunity to mention a blog post that Sean, one of our great copywriters wrote about basically minimum effective dose. How much should you train to get faster? So go check out that out. It'll also be down in the link below, uh, for the description on this blog post. Uh, but Chad, you've, you've prepared quite a lot on this one. I have, and it <clears throat> actually ties into the next one, which I feel like I'm locked in for about a half hour here. So we're going <laughs> to, we're going to try to, get this <laughs> we have some other good questions too. So, okay. <clears throat> Enough dawdling. Uh, <laughs> let me answer the question first. So VO2 max or FTP, almost always both. Kai, uh, changes in VO2 max very often impact your FTP. Uh, it'd be really hard not to do it. It's not to say you can't do it because you can, but unless your VO2 max changes and you somehow find a way to work at a different percentage of that VO2 max, then your FTP is going to change right along with it. <clears throat> FTP, and, and then when it comes to FTP itself, it's is an endurance athlete's bread and butter. I mean, seldom will I neglect it, not, not, not in training plans, not in workout design, not in uh, recommendations I make. So I'm almost always talking about both. And the second part of that, nothing's indefinite. Kai, fitness is never stagnant. Even if you seem to be sitting on a plateau or you seem to have pushed to a peak and you, you're just hanging in there no matter what you do, things are changing. Uh, it's, it's just not a stagnant system. So what do we, what do you, all of us need to consider? And, and the fortunate thing is there are a lot of parallels to peaking and tapering. And really those two things go absolutely hand in hand. I mean, you taper to achieve a peak performance. So they might as well be the same word. If I had to sum this up in a single sentence, my reply would be drastic reductions are likely to eventually lead to declines in performance capacity. Okay. So let me say that again, drastic reductions likely to eventually lead to declines in how well you can perform. So let's look at each of those words that I emphasize drastic. So both the duration, the intensity, especially frequency reductions in any of those are all at play here. You decrease one performance is second word likely how much is all relative. It's relative to a few things, where you started, where you are, where you've been. In terms of where you started, are you untrained or sedentary? Are you healthy or recreational? Are you well or highly trained? Are you elite? And again, if we look at studies, they use these terms so interchangeably, not interchangeably, but they're, 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 
seldom, if ever, mean the same thing. But again, you look mm. at the stats and then you can determine, oh, okay, so we're talking about someone who's like me or someone, whatever. Those those are far more telling than these terms. Um, a mm. 2001 study, they took, tw- uh, they did a 21-day training reduction. And I know you're probably lock- you're talking about a longer duration than that. But over the course of 21 days, they used well-trained cyclists. And that meant, in this case, they had five years of cycling experience or more riding two hours a day, four to five times a week. And not relevant to this discussion, but interesting nonetheless, is that they wanted to see would a continuous interval design versus an intermittent interval design be better at sustaining their fitness. The continuous was basically sweet spot intervals and the intermittent was basically over-unders. What's relevant here is that they reduced their volume by 50% and their frequency by 21% for these 21 days. That means if you were doing 600 TSS weeks, now you're doing 300 TSS weeks. If you're on the bike five days a week, now you're on the bike four days a week. In well-trained, as they described it, both of these protocols proved effective and they maintained both their maximal and their submaximal adaptations over these 21 days. There's no slip at all. Huge reduction in, uh, huge reductions and, 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 and they maintained. For additional reading on this topic, just learn the name Inigo Mujica, and I'm sure I'm butchering that, but... Mr. Mujica, and in this case, uh, Padilla in 2000 put out a set of studies which provide ample information. I mean, uh, potentially hours worth of reading, but a lot of stuff to contemplate and they tie to so many other studies. You can really get lost in the weeds on this one, but they look at the effects of short-term detraining and long-term detraining as a result of training cessation. We're not talking about reducing the amount of training as we were. We're talking about stopping training altogether. And they draw that line at about four weeks. So short-term is under four weeks, long-term is over four weeks. And of note is that Mujica points out that adaptations can be maintained with very low training frequency. So one of those variables that I just mentioned in moderately trained athletes, but in higher trained athletes or highly trained athletes, that frequency requirement is higher. So what's, Mm. what holds true for one set of athletes may not hold true for another. Okay, so now where are you? <laughs> That's not what I would have expected. <laughs> so now, now you ask yourself, well, where are you? Are you a solid six months or 12 months into an uninterrupted block of structure? Or are you a spotty athlete who's only been doing this for a few months or even a few years, but you've never really gotten that rhythm quite right? Are you on the mend? Are you coming back from illness or injury? Are you at the beginning or the end of a big loading cycle? Because all of these things impact the effects of this... Uh, scheduled training or this training reduction that you're contemplating. And then you have to ask yourself where you've been, because this is the difference between years versus months versus weeks of consistency. And we've talked many times about how you can drum up really rapid fitness by just focusing on short VO2 max intervals over a short period of time. Something that I've termed brittle fitness. The opposite end of that is just, just what I described. If you've been consistent for literally years, you know, to a great extent, you build much more robust fitness. Where you come from is absolutely going to reflect or going to affect how this uh, reduction in training uh, affects you. And then mm-hmm. uh, back to that sentence will eventually lead to declines in performance capacity. How long are we talking about here? Because if given enough time, a return toward baseline is all but inevitable. You simply can't avoid it. The question really is just how quickly and how close you'll get to that baseline. So there are a lot of factors that can influence how far and how fast you decline. But in general, Kai, doing something can drastically slow or even halt that rate of decline, at least for a period of time. 
And this is all training reduction. And next question, we'll actually talk about what happens when you cease training. So training cessation. Solid transition. Chad Yarian's question. He yeah. says, I was wondering Such if there's, <laughs> I was wondering if there's any science behind the claim that fitness comes back quickly. <clears throat> to me, that would imply that consistent training produces at least some semi-permanent adaptations. But is there any merit to this? Or is it something we tell ourselves to feel better about our massive fitness drop after a training break, asking for a friend? Surely you are, Yari, and a very concerned friend. Way to go. Um, so yeah, Chad, uh, what say you on this point? Okay, so first off, I just have to point out the use of the term semi-permanent. And I see that, and we all know what it means, but I struggle with it because it's like being uh, 99% sure. You know, you're, you're sure or you're not sure. There's, it's, it's black or white binary. Same with permanent. It's permanent or it's not. Yeah, <laughs> no middle exactly. But again, very good point. We're Jack. talking yeah. about we're talking about changes that hang in there for longer. They don't dissipate super quickly. Okay, yeah. so th- this comes down to or, or the differentiation here, I guess, could be drawn between reduction in training versus cessation of training. And we just talked about reduction. We'll touch back on it in a little bit. But for now, let's steer the conversation towards cessation. And I'm going to look at an observational study to kick things off by Maldonado and uh, Maldonado Martin, combination name or hyphenated name, a few years back, who used young, what she termed, I believe, top level athletes. And they underwent five weeks of training cessation. And the reason this isn't an interventional study, but an observational one is because they did this anyway. They didn't have to say take five weeks off. Rather, these athletes were at the end of their season and they were going to take five weeks off. So they just watched them and saw what happened. In this case, they were all men, 10 of them. They were roughly 20 years of age, and these were hitters, youngsters with big aerobic engines in the VO2 max in the ballpark of 80. So highly, highly capable. Training training in the ballpark of 20 hours a week. All of them were right around five watts a kilo uh, on the bike for about 25,000 kilometers per year if that resonates with you and competing on the order of about 50 days per year. So in other words, so, they just grabbed 50 random Nike athletes. Cause I swear yeah, they're seriously. all, it's ridiculous <laughs> how fast they yeah. climb those kids. Yeah. So if we go back to Mujica and Padilla again, they noted in their short term study that VO two max over the course of about four weeks declines anywhere from six to 20% when you stop training. And this study totally held that up because they went for five weeks and they saw a decline between eight and 11%. And it's worth noting that this Mm -hmm. is similar across endurance sports. Doesn't matter whether you're a kayaker or a swimmer or a cross country skier, this, this, this just carries. And this is largely attributable in the early stages to a decrease in blood volume and therefore the delivery to the working muscles. So plasma changes happen fast. Red blood cell content over the course or red blood cell count over the course of this declines. So your, your, your packed cell volume comes down and with it, hemoglobin levels. So, so, you know, we got the less red blood cells to carry the oxygen to the working muscles, less hemoglobin on those red blood cells to bind the oxygen and get into the muscles. So, this is why you take that big VO2 max hit early on. And that in and of itself is, is a bummer. But what I find to be the more crushing declines happen at the submaximal values. And that's basically LT1, LT2. And, and this takes place up to in the ballpark of 20% with both of them. So let's briefly talk about what those mean. We've talked about the ventilatory thresholds when, when Nate can get it out of his mouth, the VT1 and VT2. <laughs> this is this is closely equivalent. Good job. I hope he's still in the live chat. Jab, Nate. There we he go. Knows it. He knows it. He struggles with that word. So VT1 and VT2. Yeah, we had to jab him once. Sorry. Yeah. Curtis. I, I yeah. lowered myself. I'm sorry. Okay, so... 
VT1 and VT2, close, close correlates to LT1 and LT2. And, and we just, we kind of deal more in that, that realm here, here at trainer road and probably as coaches in general. I, I don't know, but, uh, so LT2 is pretty straightforward. We, 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 we work in terms of FTP and there's also the term maximal lactate steady state. There's a hundred other terms, but this is kind of, kind of for most people is about four millimoles of lactate in the bloodstream at any one point, but that's highly variable. Uh, they, mm. if one study said that if they pin the average at four millimoles, then athletes range anywhere from two to seven millimoles at a time. So it's a pretty big variance, <laughs> yeah. but most people tend to fall around <laughs> four millimoles. I don't even know if anybody really uses that anymore. They may say what mm. happens at four millimoles, but they don't define that as your max, max last state. Okay. So, so basically FTP LT one, however, or VT one, I think people don't recognize the importance of this. And I kind of touched on it above when I talked about the difference between aerobic endurance and muscular endurance. This is maybe 60, 65, 70% of your FTP, but this is where you live. If you're doing long events, if you're doing anything over a few hours, you're going to spend so much time here and mm. you may not think it doesn't matter where my LT1 falls. And, and in terms of blood lactate, that's basically a one millimole bump from inactivity. So you're sitting there, you start doing a bit of work, your blood lactate comes up a little bit, but it's highly tolerable, something you can do for long periods of time. But again, this is where you live. So if your LT1 falls at 200 watts and people are riding at 220, that's going to put you in a, that, that, that's going to be a limitation. But if you mm -hmm. elevate your LT1 to 240 and now you're working highly aerobically, at wattage that's above what the field is traveling at, that bodes well for you. So mm. it's not just about FTP. I mean, that aerobic endurance down at 60 to 70% of your FTP is really important. And elevating that, depending on the type of athlete you are and the goals you have, is really important, or it can be. Mm. Okay, so back to the study with the youngsters. The, the body mass effects, I haven't even talked about those yet. So these affect everything on all, affect all of the relative values. And these mm. poor kids gained anywhere. The, truth. the, the <laughs> upper end of it was a 5%, roughly a 5% gain in body mass. And you can bet that probably wasn't muscle because kids that are this fast are probably not hitting the gym trying to add mass. This is probably just, and they were detraining anyway. So I'm guessing they weren't in the gym at all. That means they were coming back into their training season. If they were at 70 kilograms and that, that was the, the median for these guys with an extra three and a half kilograms of body mass, which I'm going to guess is adipose tissue, which translates to about eight pounds in standard mm -hmm. measures. That's a, that's just discouraging. I mean, coming back in with that much <laughs> extra mass on your body, that's a bummer. That does not motivate hard training from, from the get go. You know what though, Chad is as hard as that would be. That's honestly not far out of the realm of of actual that that regularly occurs for a lot of athletes when Absolutely. they go into an off season. Oh every no, no, year. That, that's where so I'm going applicable. with this. So I feel like this yeah, study was watching me eight weeks ago. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm just yeah. going to cut to the chase here. Don't do any of this. Don't take five weeks off. Okay, sure. so these are all decreases that were observed in younger athletes, and it is different for older professionals. We typically see lesser drops in both submaximal and maximal exercise responses. And this carries to amateur athletes too. And we'll talk about that a little more. So let's put these declines in power terms for just a minute. And this isn't the best example because it's a, a rower and it's at the elite level, but it does help us put some power numbers behind what's at stake here. This study was a, a case study on an elite rower where for eight weeks, this athlete detrained. Over the course of that eight weeks, this uh, this athlete, I think it was a man, this guy saw an 8% decline. Actually, with these numbers, it was a man. The, saw an 8% decline in VO2 max. Okay, that, that, that sounds 
terrible. I don't, I don't want that. What does that translate to? <laughs> well, the power that this athlete was putting out at VO2 max was 546 watts. And given we're talking about rowing, so there's a whole lot of muscle mass contributing, more so than driving the pedals. That declined from 546 to 435 watts. That's a 20% hit in the power at that now lower VO2 max. I mean, that's, that's tremendously discouraging. So eight weeks of inactivity, 20% drop, eight weeks of retraining rekindled about 15% of that brought it up to 501. So what was about 550 is now about 500 after eight weeks, 12 more weeks for a total of 20 weeks of retraining back up to snuff 552 Watts point being that it took 20 weeks just to get back to where this athlete was, which I'm I, as an Olympic level athlete, that may have been exactly what this athlete needed was a stark departure from, from what he was doing and came back a little bit stronger too. And if this athlete was pushing the height of his genetic potential, those handful of extra Watts could have been mm -hmm. worth all of this. But for everybody else, do recognize that you're just hobbling yourself. And this is an athlete with a, a huge training history. So it's probably not going to apply to you in the same way. Okay, so now let's talk rate of decay, and, and this varies across adaptation. So, so back to those uh, Mujica papers, in the first three to four weeks, you see these VO2 max and therefore FTP changes that I just talked about, see declines in cardiac output. And if your heart's pushing out less blood, it has to beat more. So heart rate at every level goes up. Blood lactate over the course of just 21 to 28 days changes drastically because you are effectively becoming a more anaerobic athlete as your aerobic capacity dwindles. Muscle glycogen stores decline roughly 20% over a single week of inactivity. And, and I can totally attest to this Yowza. because when I sprained my ankle and I was in a boot for three weeks, I did a couple of booted rides and then I finally did a ride where I took the boot off and I looked down and I was terrified and disgusted all at once. Amaret, <laughs> who was riding next to me on the indoor trainer, looks over at me and she's like, what? And I, and I describe it. And she's like, can't be that bad. Got off the bike, stood so she could see both my legs side by side. And she actually said, I don't love you as much as I used to. And I know she was kidding, <laughs> but it was that drastic. It looked, it looked awful. Uh, way to go, Amaret. Oh, that atrophy one. is so creepy when you see oh, it. It's, it's so creepy. Oh, I mean, I mean that's probably uh, the muscles rebounded. So the muscle was probably still there. This was probably just glycogen, just gone. There was mm -hmm. nothing left. Mm. Um, and then glycogen synthase. So the, the enzyme responsible for synthesizing gly glycogen decreases after just five days. Those GLUT4 transporters we talked about in the past that push the, the little, the little uh, transporters that move to the outside of the cell to grab the glucose and bring it in, that declines. Your RER, your respiratory exchange ratio, sees a rapid decline over just 14 days. And that means, and this is something I think people may not recognize, is that when you go out, you, you, you've had time off, you get on the bike and you go out and you chase some Strava records, as, as Jonathan was describing, and you hit those 30, 40, 60 second efforts and you're flying, maybe even get a couple mm -hmm. better times, whatever. Doesn't necessarily mean you're fit because that decrease in aerobic capacity translated to an increase in anaerobic capacity. So now you think you're fit when in fact your aerobic engine has still taken the same hit that you cannot avoid. It's still Chad, there. That's one of the attacked. Well, yeah. <laughs> that's, <laughs> but that's one of the that's one of the reasons we taper, right, Chad? So yeah, uh, yeah. That, that's one of the reasons. So yeah. Yeah. Okay. So the takeaway here is that in the first three to four weeks, these are largely central adaptations. They take the biggest hit and that's largely about the heart and the blood, but the peripheral system follows. So your muscles go to your capillary density dwindles, your mitochondrial density and the enzymes that go with it dwindle numerous other oxidative enzymes take a hit early and in most cases continue to decline. 
And all of this is largely metabolic, but we experience muscle losses as well. Over the course of three to four weeks, you'll get a, a decline in the loss of the maximum force you can put out, the maximum, the maximum power. All these things start to trickle in. And now it's probably a good it's time like, to mention. Go ahead. <laughs> Amber's sad. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm <laughs> sad. I feel like it's, it's like you you neglect your friends and they all go away. <laughs> That's a super good way to put it. That's what happens. They don't want to hang out with you anymore. You're not going to give them attention. They're not going to give know. you the benefit like, of their company. Bye, mitochondria. <laughs> it was good it, while it lasted. <laughs> but it's this is a good time to mention that detraining on newly conditioned versus long-term conditioned, very different effects. So athletes mm -hmm. with a substantial training history detrain to a higher point or a higher VO2 max. And this might be, you know, the semi-permanent we're talking about. So if, for instance, you started training with a 50 VO2 max and with training, you brought it up to a 65, but then you completely detrain, it might only drop to, I don't know, 55 or 54 VO2 max. So you don't lose all of it. Some of it is retained if you really reinforce it. Recently trained, however, expect a return to zero or what's often termed a complete reversal of physiological adaptation. It all goes away. You, you go back to scratch. So do you, and the, I'm going to throw my own question in here if I okay. may. Do you, do you suggest time off for some athletes and not others? Like you seem like the Olympic athlete, right? You were yeah. like those rowers probably needed to reset completely yeah. to build back up higher. Sure. But with a newly trained athlete for their first few years of training, would you suggest like, okay, get like this much under your belt before you start thinking of like time off for physical gains, like mental. As a coach, we'll I, I would, because side. in the early stages, you got to see the longer game, right? And I would just advise against it or at least try to support the, the consistency and make them completely aware of the fact that this is what's at stake. You can take that time off, but this could reset you. So if you're mm -hmm. okay with coming back, basically where you started this time around, no problem. Take that time off. But if you want to hold on to this, you're going to have to do a bit of work in the meantime. Okay. And that's where cross training can be super valuable too, because it can provide a mental reset yep. without while you're still stimulating some of these systems. So I'll just interject it's a, that. And it's a great you, point. No, you're exactly right. Okay, <laughs> so this return to zero actually carries to other adaptations. It's not your VO2 max. Um, so again, recently trained athletes hear us, hear, hear what we're saying right now. So that's the first four weeks. Over the next four weeks, everything that I just mentioned, some of it continues to fall, some of it actually stabilizes. One thing that does enter the mix are the changes in cardiac dimensions. So the, the, both the size of the heart and specifically the size of your left ventricle, the one that fills with the oxygenated, oxygenated blood and pushes it out to your muscles, this increases its wall thickness and also the, the pliability of the, of the tissue itself. And both of these things, they, they aid in both letting it fill to a higher extent and clear to a higher extent. So basically, you're moving more blood. So this is another decline in that that central, in those central capabilities. And then <clears throat> as far as moderately trained athletes go, if you saw any blood pressure reductions over the course of your training, expect that to be completely reversed at about 12 weeks in. Ventilatory function declines 10 to 14% your max ventilatory volume. And while we're on the topic really briefly, difference between ventilation and respiration, just want to spell this out because these terms get used interchangeably and they are not interchangeable. Ventilation is moving air in and out of the lungs. Respiration is the exchange of gases. So oxygen, carbon dioxide. Yes, that takes place mm -hmm. in the lungs. That's pulmonary respiration, but it also takes place in the cells, cellular respiration. So here we're talking about ventilatory function. So ventilatory function. So how much air now you can get off. in and move back. You're, you're all going to be able to impress your friends at the, well, 
bars don't happen anymore, but at the next zoom call, (laughs) (laughs) zoom happy hour. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. And then capitalization, this is equivocal, so I won't burden you with it, but, uh, in recently gained adaptations, there is a return in capitalization or a return to baseline and capitalization. So all those little blood vessels that perfuse your muscle start to dwindle. As far as trained Mm. subjects, it's, there's science to support and, and, uh, refute that. And then mm-hmm. fiber type fibers, a to B, the, the, the conversion happens in runners and cyclists. So you think of the, the slow twitch fibers, they start to become more fast twitch in nature, the cross-sectional area or the muscle mass. And I'm not sure of the time course of this, but those start to dwindle. And then, uh, and, and both these changes are more prominent and recently trained. Again, the, the fitness is simply, the adaptations are simply more brittle. They're more temporary. They're really semi-permanent. Okay, but there is a brighter side here. So first of which, and I struggled and struggled to find this this paper, but I, I couldn't, and I will continue to look for it because I do want to talk about this, but it suggested that there's a sensitivity to training stress and that detraining can actually increase the sensitivity. So you're to a point, you couldn't elevate past it, but you take some time off and certain things become more sensitive to the training stress when it's reintroduced and you ascend to a higher height. Um, and then the, I think so. That's yes. So um, like I said, I'm going to continue to look for that. And if anyone knows that study, please point it out to me. Um, and then the reductions, as we discussed, or as I discussed above, there is so much evidence that shows your VO2 max doesn't have to take a hit. Your max heart rate won't change at all. Your time to exhaustions at various durations will not change your sub max, uh, VO2 heart rate, your blood lactate levels, all these things can hold really steady. If you'll just do a little bit of work and very little is required to, to, to manage this. And as Amber mentioned earlier, we'll close it out, excuse me, with this is that there are tremendous benefits to cross training and it does change across level of athletes, but the, the, the general effects, um, let's see here. So, so when it comes to aerobic maintenance, if you have a lower VO2 max, you can do all sorts of things. Dissimilar modes is, is what it's termed. So you don't necessarily have to be on the bike to maintain bike fitness. You can go do any number of other activities as long as you're kind of hitting that aerobic engine. If you have a higher VO2 max, however, more similar modes become necessary. So you have to keep mm-hmm. it similar to retain the adaptations in the specific muscles that drive the specific activity you're doing. So I don't think that's news to anybody. Um, and then with the higher VO two max, the, the lower, the effect of cross training. So you're probably only going to be able to get away with it for so long. And then the more elite or the more skilled you are, when it comes to cross training, you face the greater potential for dilution of that skill. So if you're really good mm-hmm. at something, you, you, the more you cross train, the, the more you have at stake. So I'm going to re I'm going to recap based on all that awesome information that you just provided, Chad. Thanks. I was watching <laughs> the clock me. the whole time. It's <laughs> fantastic. This is Nailed good. it. Um, Nailed uh, it. So basically, is there any science behind the claim that fitness comes back quickly? And we've covered decay rates and that it drops. And as far as coming back quickly, quickly, we've actually covered this before on a podcast episode. And if you search for base that very much that that very thing, fitness coming back, you'll be able to find it with Ask a Cycling Coach podcast where we covered that. Um, but yeah, uh, to his to his original question here. We have all those things that end up coming, going down. It does not take much to be able to maintain them, as Chad said, and it also doesn't take much to be able to come back from them. Uh, but it is important in that process to understand what is lost. Um, you can't just all chalk it up to bro science and hope. So <laughs> one, one 
positive silver lining of all of this is reading through all of this. These are all of the amazing things that happen when you do train. Mm -hmm. And I think mm -hmm. sometimes people look at say a VO2 max test, for example, and they're like, Oh, that's my number. But these things are plastic. They change, which means yes, they can come down, but they can go back up again. So it's pretty mm -hmm. cool when you look at these lists of things that we see happen and diminish with detraining, but it's like, these are the things that are happening positively every time you ride your bike, which is mm -hmm. pretty cool. It's awesome. We have uh, one more question we need to cover. We're going to go into overtime here, but we got to cover this one. I'm going to take a, a quick, <laughs> actually, I'll, I'll wait for the drink. Um, Neen, I hope that's how you pronounce the name. Uh, it's a Danish name, and I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly, so I apologize if not. Um, but she says, Dear Train Road team, been a longtime listener and a fan of the product, and I have a question maybe particularly for Amber. I've prim primarily been cycling with men because not many women are cycling in my area, and I'm also a woman. For me, this has meant a lot of internal and maybe also a bit of external comparison with guys always feeling like I wasn't strong or fast enough, even though I was thanks to your product. Way to go. I mean, way to, way to put nice. the, the drop on them and do the good old chicked on the guys there. I like that. <laughs> Keep them humble. Um, eventually, uh, I quit cycling about one and a half years ago, but I occasionally miss it. But every time I, or she says, every time I try to go back, the negative self-destructive thoughts reappear and I'm discouraged. And I think to myself that sports are not meant to make you feel bad. Amen to that. Mm, yeah. uh, she says the thoughts appear even when I'm cycling alone. So do you have any advice for number one, stopping comparison or comparing yourself with others and being happy with your own results? And number two, Maybe getting back into cycling after a longer break and how to stay motivated instead of comparing yourself to your own old faster self. Uh, hope you'll take the time to answer my question and stay safe. Best from Nin. Um, fantastic question. Uh, Amber, yeah. this one's well within your wheelhouse. <laughs> I'm excited about this one. I was, I'm sure everybody could guess. Um, so the first one is stop comparing yourself with others and be happy with your own results. How do we do this? Well, the first thing to do is to remove one layer off the bat, and that is to remove the layer of getting down on yourself for getting down on yourself, right? Because we do this. It, you know, you, your question itself is expressing frustration with the fact that you have this negative self-talk and that you're struggling to, you know, remain positive in your own mind. So the first thing is to stop feeling bad about it because that's just a, le a layer of negative that you can get rid of right away. Easier said than done. And the reason that I think it's important to address this specifically is because it's, I want to remind you that most of us do this. So this is not a, a character flaw or weakness in you. This is very, very, very common among most people and definitely among most athletes. Um, and I think part of the reason for that is a lot of us learn to do this at a very young age for whatever reason. In sport, that's often because a coach or an authority figure used really negative and sometimes borderline verbally abusive language to quote unquote motivate you. And we kind of see this pattern that the way to be driven and motivated is to be hard on yourself. And so that's something that can become ingrained at a really young age. And then the more that we do it over time, we start reinforcing these thought patterns, which are their physical neurological, you know, patterns of synapses that are firing in a particular way in your brain. And every time you kind of go through that loop of thought, you're strengthening that pattern and that pathway in your brain. So this literally physically can become ingrained in your brain. It doesn't mean you can't change it, but it's important to step back and say, you know, it's not because you're a weak person or you're a negative person that this is happening. It's because at some point you learn this and probably at some point it served you to an extent, right? 
So that would be uh, one of the first steps you can take. So first step is don't feel bad about it. This is really common. It's something you can change, but it's not something you need to get down on yourself about. And then the second thing is um, to start thinking about, you know, it can help to understand why this is happening. And I know I'll use myself as an, as an example. The reason I think, a couple of reasons that I found having a harsh inner critic, quote unquote, helpful. Uh, one was, it was a bit of a protective mechanism for me because I didn't do well as a youngster with um, negative feedback from other people. So it mm. became this protective mechanism where it was like, if I could get down on myself worse <laughs> and faster <laughs> than other people could criticize me, then nothing mm. anyone could say could hurt me as long as I could say the harshest thing faster than anybody else could say it. Mm. And it's not really, it's kind of counterproductive to be honest, but you know, in, in some weird way that made sense to me. And that was, so it was a bit of a defense mechanism for me. And then the other part of it was a fear that if I wasn't hard on myself, that I would become complacent and that I had to be hard on myself in order to be driven and to improve. So I think it's important to ask yourself, you know, are there ways in which your negative self-talk has served you? Do those things still actually serve you? It's important to question that. And you don't have to know why, and you don't really have to dig too deep in this to, in order to start changing it, but it can be helpful for some people. So I'll throw that out there. Mm -hmm. uh, the main thing that you want to do is to start disrupting these loops, right? So um, the first thing I want to, I kind of want to go back and reiterate is being okay with yourself as you are right now does not take away your drive and motivation. It is, you don't have to loathe who you are in this moment or be down on who you are in this moment in order to want to improve. You can be proud of who you are right now. You can be happy with yourself right now and still feel enthusiastic about improving and learning. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, when I say that out loud right now, it probably makes a lot of sense, but it's hard to internalize that when we get rewarded sometimes for being driven by on the path, like by use of really harsh internal criticism. Mm -hmm. So you don't need that to be driven. You don't need that to be improved and questioning that basis can actually really help open the door to start disrupting this narrative in your mind. Um, one of the things I found really helpful in disrupting the loop was just to become aware of when I was being negative with myself. And it was hard to do that without really judging myself and saying like, oh, there you go being negative, negative mm -hmm. again. And so there's that extra layer of negativity on negativity. And one easy, like really helpful way of disarming this is to use humor. So if you give your inner critic a funny name, like as an example, uh, for a while I called mine Regina George, who's the classic <laughs> mean character in, in the movie Mean Girls, if you haven't seen it. Whatever name that you find goofy, maybe you could name your inner critic some like horrible teacher that you had at some point that you didn't like that had a funny name. But whatever it is, something that can kind of get you to pause and be like, oh yeah, there's Regina again, here we go. And that way you're removing that, that layer of negativity of getting down on yourself or being negative with yourself. And you're pausing to notice when your brain is moving back into this pattern. So you can kind of pause that loop for a moment and be like, oh, this is happening again. And then once you get good at pausing and noticing when it's happening, you can start to take that next step in redirecting. Hmm. Um, so I would, I would start there you know, don't, don't get down on yourself for this. 
you're already doing that enough. It's okay. And give your critic kind of a funny name and, you know, take time and to acknowledge that this is probably something you learned at a young age and it may have served you to an extent at some point. And that does, you know, doesn't mean it still serves you and it doesn't mean you need to continue this pattern. Hmm. And then as far as getting back into cycling after a long break and how to stay motivated instead of comparing yourself to your older, faster self, I think one way of thinking about this is when athletes get injured, you have this injury and your ma- the, the, your first thing is, okay, I got to get back to where I was right before I got injured instead hmm. of resetting your zero point to the moment you got injured. And let's say you had a bad crash, you got injured and you're coming back from that. Reset your zero point to the moment of that crash, right? <clears throat> when you're, when you hit the deck and then when you're comparing all of your progress to that zero point, it starts to feel pretty motivating because you're improving by leaps and bounds. And that's really cool. So I think if you're coming back to the sport from a long hiatus, you have a new zero point, you have a fresh page and that's how you want to define this path. This is a new path. You have accumulated all kinds of cool new life experiences. You have evolved as a person. So you're even kind of a different person at this point. And as this person that you are today, it's okay to be proud of yourself. It's okay to be happy with where you are. And you can get excited about that journey forward and say, let's see what I can do. Let's see what this person today that I have become now can do. Let's see how I can improve. Mm. So resetting that zero point is really helpful And then commit to the long haul with this, right? This isn't about fast, immediate um, gains. This is about settling in. This is about water cutting stone, committing to the process. You're you're committing to a process and not to an end point. You're committing to the process. And so if you're framing it as a process, then it's like, let's see what I can do. Embrace it with curiosity and enthusiasm. It's not about going back to where you used to be. It's about imagining what you could become in the future. So it's a never ending learning process. No one ever finally gets it. And we're all still moving on our own paths, including me. And I'm pretty sure everybody on this podcast too. Absolutely. I feel like you've been talking about me this whole time. (laughs) (laughs) Super weird to like talk about Alex, but he's here and I'll talk to him. (laughs) These last few questions have just been like my life on blast. Uh, Alex, you actually, I saw you raise your hand at one point. Is there something that that you wanted to add that you still want want to share? Uh, I just wanted to share a personal story. um, Amber was talking about how like you almost like value that negative insight. And like I had this, Mm -hmm. I failed uh, my four by 15 workout a while back. And like, I almost like tried to let it run its course of negativity because in my mind, I was like, if I if I kind of let it die, then I it's the same drive in my head that makes me fast, right? Is the same drive that makes me upset that I failed. So I was scared to like be mm-hmm. okay with it because then I'm mm-hmm. scared once it comes time to push, then I'm going to be complacent. And I'm going to be like, okay, well, I'm just okay with that kind of thing. So it's like there is that fear that that they're one and the same. They're the same drive that makes you fast that makes you upset to to not succeed. So. Ooh, Again, that's felt like my, my story was being told on, yeah. on the podcast. Cause it's like, am I, am I lowering the standard that I'm setting for myself? If I show myself compassion for a, a, in a moment where I don't, where I come up short. Yeah. And, and, and to your point too, um, like I, I actually, I'm not sure if this point was made here yet. There are times when you do have to tell yourself, get up and go or do this or stick to it. Mm-hmm. Like you, you have to, you know, like, like the, 
this isn't, um, it's really tempting to see things always as like an all or nothing approach and kind of like, um, a hundred percent this or a hundred percent that and nothing else in between. But there are times when you have to be critical of your own performance or your own choices. Like you have to, because we're not perfect. Like we do make mistakes. There are mistakes that are made because we weren't able to follow through with something. And there are mistakes that were made because we just chose not to do something. Now, if you think about the mistakes that are made when you were doing a workout and you couldn't complete it, in most cases, that's not a mistake where it was like you chose to just quit. And many times Mm -hmm. it's because many other factors came in and made it really hard to be able to perform that day. So it doesn't really make sense to punish yourself, right? For that sort of a thing. Learn what you can from it, but it doesn't really make sense to punish yourself for it. So in that way, it kind of separates the motivation to improve and that drive to improve from that negative critic that that can be detrimental. Um, there's yeah. pr- and pr- productivity is or productive feedback and negative feedback. They're not the same thing. They're very they can, right. they're different. They're decoupled. Yeah, and and I'm not suggesting that you should just always be like, "Wow, I'm amazing, and everything <laughs> I do is amazing, and everything's perfect, and I don't need to work on anything because I'm just great." No, it's you, being honest with yourself and saying, you know, "Hey, I made a mistake here." That there's a huge difference between saying, huh, I really made a mistake with this one. And man, I let myself, you know, stay up too late watching Netflix four nights in a row. And I really didn't eat that well today. And man, totally botched that workout. And saying, okay, what can I take away from this? Let's see. Well, if I, I can nail down my sleep better, here's the, here are the learnings that I can take away from this so that I can do better next time. Let's see what we can do when I've got really great sleep and really good fueling. That's a really different thing than, oh, you idiot. God, you suck so much. How could you, seriously, how could you screw up this workout? You've done this 10 million times before. What is wrong with you? You didn't even sleep. You didn't even fuel appropriately. You know better than this. What the hell? I mean, those are, you, you, it, it's, it's not about not acknowledging where you come up short. It's about looking at it as a learning process, engaging with a learning process in a positive, constructive way with enthusiasm. Like, I can't wait to see what I do with this workout when I've got great sleep and fueling under my belt. I know I can nail it as opposed to sitting and like raking yourself over the coals because you didn't do it perfectly this last time. That's mm-hmm. the difference. So it's it's not about being blind and sweeping mistakes and shortcomings under the rug. It's about examining them honestly but in a way that's not cutting yourself off at the knees, so to speak, you, you, you can still get positive takeaways out of this and, and be with a positive sort of self-affirming mindset where you're, you're, you're your own ally in it. You're not fighting against yourself. You're not putting yourself down because you didn't come, you didn't hit the same standard that you had hoped to and that you usually do. Yeah. Fantastic points. Um, Alex, I know you have to hop off at 10, 15, Um, we have more that we can cover and we have questions that we plan to cover that we weren't able to cover. Do we want to just push all that stuff to the following week? Um, what, what say you hosts? Do you want to cover some of it now? The only point left with this question is just a recommendation for, uh, both a study, but also for people to recognize the importance of self-talk, but not just the importance of it. Cause I think we're all on the same page in, in, in that it is important and it is impactful, but the nuance of self-talk is actually probably weightier than most people recognize. And this study just showed the difference between speaking to yourself in the first person versus the second person. The difference between I've got this and you've got this, but you're still speaking to you. 
and, and it actually makes an impact. And I think all of us related to this because when we discussed it in the planning meeting, we're all like, man, I've done that. I've noticed yeah. just subtle differences mm -hmm. in the way yeah. I say things to myself, the way I address myself. Do I address in first person versus second person? Never third person, just so we're clear, because that's just creepy. <laughs> But it, it does. Chad's doing this. Make a difference. <laughs> Chad's got this. Chad's so good at this. No. That's, uh, but anyway, I still can't get over Chad saying linked. tummy earlier. Sorry. <laughs> Touchy tummies. <laughs> Lots of visuals going on with that one. But yeah, that's a super good point. It becomes uh, more effective and powerful when you aren't just speaking in the first person. You can inject doubt into that. You can doubt yourself when it's just you saying it. When other people are saying it, it can, and you feel like they're supporting you, it can help it. So even in self-talk, that can be even there. Even if that person's so, you, yeah. Yeah. At least that's what this study awesome shows. Stuff. So it's interesting and definitely thought-provoking. Yeah. yeah. Thanks everybody for, for tuning in today. And thanks Amber for this, uh, for this awesome last cover that you did on this question. Thanks Alex, oh, thanks. um, for joining us. And of course, if you're thanks watching Chad this video, on, dives. yes, of course, <laughs> thumbs up. If you're watching this on YouTube and subscribe and hit the notification bell. So you don't miss any time we go live or have new videos. We put them up every day <laughs> so you can get awesome content all the time and go to trainerroad.com. Check it out, sign up, get faster. And we'll talk to you next week. Thanks everybody. Thanks, everybody. Bye, everyone. Thanks.